Flyover Politics Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. wants your help. For the first time in history, the company is combining six of your favorite breakfast brands into one. The all-together box is a mix of Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, Rice Krispies, Frosted Mini Wheats, Raisin Bran, and Corn Flakes, all packed into a purple box with their respective mascots pictured on the front. Cereal fans can head to the Kellogg's website today to order the online limited edition box for $20, and you can crunch on your breakfast knowing it's for a good cause. Kellogg's is donating 50 grand to support an LGBTV, uh, LGBTQ advocacy group. Excuse me. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 21st of October, year of our Lord, 2019. And I'm going to go backwards today because that shit is too good to pass up. You heard it. It literally is gay cereal. Gay cereal. So I'm not even going to talk. I'm just going to get right into it. Let's do news, social media nuggets. Were you trying to get crazy with this, eh? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Yes, I am insane. In my membrane. Start your day with Maximum Gay. Kellogg's launches LGBT cereal. Have you ever eaten Fruit Loops and thought, this cereal isn't gay enough? Do you seek a safe space to eat your Rice Krispies? Are you concerned that your cornflakes aren't sufficiently woke? Well, now Kellogg's has a solution. On Thursday, the gay site Pink News reported, Kellogg's is launching an LGBT-themed cereal so you can start your day with Maximum Gay. If you're a fan of breakfast and being gay, we have great news for you. Kellogg's is launching an LGBT-themed cereal. And to think, we've been eating straight cisgender cereal all this time. I didn't write this article. But it feels like I did. Time to coincide with Glad Spirit Day on October 17th. They teamed up to produce the all-together cereal, Kellogg says, is the first to offer cornflakes, Fruit Loops, Frosted Flakes, Frosted Mini Wheats, Raisin Brands, and Rice Krispies exclusively together. Unlike the mix of cereal the image on the box implies, it's actually six individual boxes. Fruit Loops and Raisin Bran together? Let your freak flag fly! Kellogg's Chief the Diversity Officer who does a cereal company need such a thing. Priscilla Cortang says, At Kellogg, we are firmly committed to quality inclusion in the workplace, marketplace, and the community where we live. As part of the Spirit Day partnership, Kellogg is donating $50,000 to GLAD, according to All Together Cereal Page. Spirit Day is when millions wear purple to stand up against bullying and to support a more accepting world for LGBTQ youth. The site explains the thinking behind the cereal. We all belong together. So for the first time in history, our famous mascots and cereals are offered exclusively together in the same box for all together cereal. It's a symbol of acceptance no matter how you look, where you're from, or who you love. We believe that all people deserve an environment where they can 
be their best selves. Glad John McCourt said the All Together Serial encompasses the values and diversity, equality and solidarity that Spirit Day is all about. And we hope that LGBTQ youth everywhere receive the message loud and clear. They already sell it. It's in a eight cube. Yeah, but they're just throwing it in one box. CNN, Kellogg's has launched the LGBTQ theme set all together to promote diversity and acceptance. This 1999 special edition box includes six individual packages, each of cornflakes, fruit loops, frosted flakes, frosted mini wheats, raisin brands, and rice krispies. The company said all together is a symbol of acceptance. They loaded it and said it was a great thing. It's awesome. Serialously, a real Twitter thing that's about cereal. A minor critique, but here's what the lineup of miniature boxes and altogether cereal would look like top versus how Kellogg could have done the bottom. And they have fr- Fruit Loops, Mini Wheats, Corn Flakes, Rice Krispies, Frosted Flakes, and Raisin Brands. They say they should have Fruit Loops, Mini Wheats, Corn Pops, Apple Jacks, Frosted Flakes, and Raisin Bran. For Glad Spirit Day, you can once more buy a box of this for 20 fucking bucks just to make yourself feel good about yourself. Yeah. That's not a thing. Another site mocking it. Kellogg has a new cereal flavor. Inclusivity. Cereal for a cause. Kellogg has announced a new limited time cereal mix called All Together. Blah, blah, blah. Companies donating. Uh, which is, of course, a nice gesture. Although the company could uh, donate more given it its revenue is $13 billion. In any event, the larger All Together box contains six miniatures. And because Kellogg believes deeply in inclusivity, there's also Raisin Bran. I would have just rebranded your Fruit Loop box because that encompasses it. And I once again state for the record, if you're going for the 5.2% or 5.4% of the country that's gay and the other 10% that are so fucking allied that they think they're gay, my daughter included, yeah, you go down that road. But I doubt a lot of people are going to sign up to pay 20 bucks for a box that says, I'm cool. Facebook cover photos or profile pictures with the frame, they don't cost you a dime. This is 20 bucks for six little boxes of cereal. You can buy the same thing with eight little boxes of cereal for about $7. I believe. Last time I looked at it. But that's how far we've gone. We now have gay cereal. Good for them. To our college stuff, university bans acts of intolerance. With Halloween approaching, college students may be thinking about what type of party they should host or what costumes they should pick. However, at Furman, students might be restricted in their plans. Free speech nonprofit, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, Furman's Acts of Intolerance policy for its October speech code of the month. The policy states that an art act of intolerance can be defined as any conduct that serves no scholarly purpose operative, uh, appropriative to the educational experience and demonstrates bias against others based on their sex, national origin, age, and etc. Which means anything the left doesn't want you to do. 
Under the policy, certain costumes at theme parties can prompt additional investigations. Theme parties that encourage people to wear costumes or act in a way that reinforces stereotypes are otherwise demeaning. Policy list as one item can lead to an additional investigation. Additionally, culturally offensive gestures, vandalism, and the use of slurs can be considered acts of intolerance. When an act of intolerance is targeted towards a specific person, it may rise to the level of discriminatory harassment. It may also constitute a hate crime for the purpose of local, state, or federal authorities. The same student policy handbook that has the act of intolerance policy also guarantees freedom of expression. Students are guaranteed freedom of inquiring expressions unless we don't like it. If you're a student, you're reading this policy, and you see that you could be investigated or even punished over expression like this, Belt said. He is from FIRE. Um... Students make self-censor because they're so concerned that any sort of subjective, controversial, or offensive expression could be investigated. You're going to be be a lot less likely to engage in conduct that could go up to that line. So it's a problem really either way, whether they're investigating the surface expression or not. And that's why we need to revise this policy to make it clear. And they're not going to. They're just not going to. Because we have a policy that says anything about scholarly well, let's let's look at what's scholarly. School celebrates International Pronoun Day with Z buttons. Advice on pronoun language is that scholarly? Maybe for the English department, since we're all going to be using fancy pronouns. But last time I checked, Z, X, V, and Zer are not real words. People just made that shit up. Wednesday, Mark International Pronoun Days, which detail more than just leftist activities, shared a hashtag on Twitter. Universities recognize the day by providing students with resources concerning various pronouns like V, X, E, and as well as How To Guide. The University of Virginia, the school's office for equal opportunity and civil rights, hosted a tabling event in multiple areas of the campus. One table featured bus- buttons displaying the pronoun he, they, and Z, and even one with a fill in a blank. Ask about my pronouns. The they button at one booth vastly outnumbered the buttons with the more traditional he pronoun, according to a photo obtained by Campus Forum. The whole issue, I think, is clearly something that a small vocal group is trying to force into the general population. One UVA student who preferred to be unnamed so he doesn't get kicked off campus. From living on college campuses for years, I can say that government concern with gender pronoun is the outlier, not the norm. The students involved get a false sense of contributing to the betterment of the world. The administration increases inclusivity score and gets another moral badge to wear. Holy shit, that's awesome. Meanwhile, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee hosted a gender pronoun guide on its LGBT resource center. Asking and correctly using someone's pronoun is one of the most basic ways to show your respect for gender identity. When someone is referred to with the wrong pronoun, it can make them feel disrespected, invalidated, dismissed, alienated, or dysphoric. I got called cracker all the time and white bread in the army. Nobody cared. 20 years in the army, most of my childhood, my adult life, people don't say my name right. I do not feel less of a person. I don't feel invalidated. I feel that they don't know how to say my name. Big fucking deal. It's a privilege to not have to worry about which pronoun someone's going to use for you based on how they perceive your gender. If you have this privilege yet fail to respect someone else's gender identity, it is not only disrespectful and hurtful, but also oppressive. Oh, really? So let me get this straight. 
In the Middle East, they throw motherfuckers off the room or the roof, stone them to death, behead them for being gay. In America, a .07% of the country came up with some crazy shit just to fuck with people and troll, as my son in Tennessee says. And that's oppressive if I don't say zur or <laughs> That's my pronoun from now on. But we're not, we're not even touching the tip of the tip. We started with gay cereal. Then we move into intolerance is anything we say it is, so don't even celebrate Halloween, to pronoun day, to now this bullshit. Just going to leave Beto O'Rourke contributions to National Period Day as a footnote. Here's what he said. In detention centers and in prisons of big cities and small towns, women across America don't have access to period products they need. On National Period Day, men need to join women in demanding real change, which is why I'm supporting the Menstrual Equality Act. Instantly after he pushed send, boys and girls, you said only women menstruate, you troglodyte, with a gif of that little skank, Greta Thunberg, going, How dare you! How dare you! This is a very anti-trans tweet, Beto. I sentence you to 30 lashings. You're never woke enough. But why is there National Period Day? That's the first thing my wife asked. What the fuck is that? Why do you even need that? Tampons being taxed in many states as luxury items has been on the Democrats' radar for a while, because we're going to the next idiot that went down this. Back in 26, when he was sitting for an interview as a YouTube star, Barack Obama guessed that it's because men wrote the laws that items like pads and tampons were subject to state sales tax. So-called tampon justice drew a little closer to reality that same year where Representative Grace Meng of Queens, New York, introduced a bill to make feminine hygiene products more accessible and affordable. But there still isn't a nationwide tampon justice. In 2020, Democrat presidential candidate Julian Castro took it to the pander. Every day, people are forced to choose between going to school or work or staying home because they can't afford the menstrual products they need. Pants, pads, tampons, cups should be available tax-free across the nation. Instantly, a conservative woman like my wife, you know, before this day, we women didn't know what to do. I mean, really, guys, I call in sick often and just bleed out all over my house because I can't afford tampons for a week every month. Lunatic left. Every day, people are forced to choose between going to school or work or staying home because they can't afford toilet paper they need. Toilet paper should be available tax-free across the nation. It makes more sense because more people use toilet paper. Really. Do you know why it's taxed? Because nobody really thought of it. It's not a big misogynistic plan. Everything's taxed. New Jersey, we just talked about. A pumpkin for decoration? Taxed. A pumpkin to eat? Not taxed. Who the fuck wrote that shit? That seems kind of stupid. But I don't see the pumpkin federation rising up and going, I want this shit. Most women have class and don't really talk about their tampons. Uh, army thing. I always had a couple tampons in the 
glove compartment in case anybody ever got shot around me, I guess, or myself. But I didn't carry it for women. I ain't a millionaires who never walk up to a woman and go, do you need a tampon? I mean, who the fuck does that? But we heard that on the last podcast. This is so pandering. I mean, the pandering I always thought on the left was pretty extreme, but this is like next level shit. Two guys pushing, we need to fix tampon sales. Yet I don't hear anybody running around saying it except for far, far left women who just hate men. They want you to pay extra fucking taxes on your nut spray just to get back at you because you're a man. I mean, that, that's really what it's about. Q student awarded 142000 attorney fees after court finds campus procedure unfair. University of South Carolina student, or South Southern California, I'm sorry, was awarded 142100 in attorney fees after California's 2nd District Court of Appeals found the student was denied a fair hearing after being accused of sexual assault and rape that he wasn't. And we covered that. Well, now he won his court case, and he got 142000 back. Which is amazing, and to pay that much money just to defend he didn't do nothing from a woman who was just trying to get payback. Yeah. Then we come into our... Gay shit. Hey, hey, hey. Bow, bow, bow. Lil pump and cut. Hey, gang shit, 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 gang shit. Don't have a lot today. I know I could have started in the beginning for the cereal, but I didn't want to play right off the bump of that gay shit. But I gotta get that. I gotta get that soundbite in because I just think it's funny. Remember, it's the person of color that made that, not me, the white guy, not me, the white oppressor. Drag queen dance read to children in Michigan dorm, Michigan State University. Drag queens read to and danced in front of children celebrating National Coming Out Day in a dorm with few students attending. On October 11th in McConnell Hall, drag queen Azio Aviance and Cash Monet read stories to mostly children and parents celebrating LGBTQ experience. The event, Time to Read Drag Storytelling, was hosted by school's LGBTQ Resource Center, MSU Student Parent Resource Center, and MSU Writing Center. Student Parent Resource Center. Yeah, you're, you're failing as a parent. The night began with the dramatic entrance as Aviance and Monet took the stage in colorful outfits. Aviance described drag as an expressive art form, comparing it to some historical examples. Whether it's jesters or shaman, every culture has experience of getting into costume, Aviance said. Yes, yeah, shaman didn't put on fake titties. I'm just throwing it out there. They were like, you know, that in itself is cultural appropriation. And you just shit over American Indian culture with your shaman. Yeah, shaman would be throwing you in the hut and doing a sweating. Yeah, a big time sweating to get the evil out of you. They would say the coyote and the fucking I don't know. I'm, see, I'm not even Indian. I can't throw this shit out. I'm trying to make fucking jokes, and I know shit about it other than dances with fucking wolves. But let's put it this way. The buffalo will not let us kill them if you keep running around like a fruitcake. 
That's what the shaman would do. The children books portraying a message of LGBTQ pride, a love for flair and color, and the hardships people in drag culture face. What hardships? What hardships? I, I still want somebody to co- give quantitative proof there are hardship for drag people. Because you can't prove it. Every time you come up with a number, it's bullshit and ripped apart by objective journalism that it wasn't true. Even the big beating they're showing lately on our last... That was a couple fighting. Because one was a real guy, and the other guy was a guy who thinks he's a girl. It's a hate crime. But technically, on surface, going back to even the shaman, they would just say that's two dudes fighting, and one got beaten to death. That happens all the time. We don't call it a hate crime, even though it is. It's hateful. I don't... I don't... I just... Wow. I... I just don't understand. The children books portrayed a message of LGBTQ pride, a love for flair and color, and hardships people in Drake culture face. I already read that. Aviance's book described a Pride Month parade and celebrating St. Banner swing and children playing Love Not Hate. These people just got married. Isn't that cool? Marriage quality. This day in June, we're all united. Who wrote that fucking book? Seriously. Who wrote that shit? Technically, the same people that came up with the pronouns. Because clearly, that's not fucking English. You fucking troglodytes. Monet's story tells of a boy named Gilbert from Kansas who overcomes a gray and dull life when he refuses to use a fireman in the military. Monet tells the children, everybody says boo to guns, boo. What? Use a fireman in the military? What does that even mean? When Gilbert reaches the San Francisco, California, he could finally breathe and be his colorful, sparkly, glittery self. But the city's flag remind Gilbert community of evil when he replaced it with a rainbow flag. Monet tells the children, Say good job, Gildren. Gilbert. You're awesome, Gilbert. I know what I'm going to say. You don't know how to write children's books very good because that fucking sucks. I'm just saying. Then Neil deGrasse Tyson spoke to Shapiro on transgender athletes. And at the end of the title, Leave the Future of Sports Unresolved. In this week's episode of Ben Shapiro's show, the Daily Wire editor-in-chief talked to anthro- astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson about his new book, Letters from Astrophysicists. During the interview, physicist, I sound like that character in, in uh, Living Color. I'm trying to say big words and I can't. That during the interview, they also briefly discussed the problem of transgender athletes participating in sports, video and partial transcripts below, blah, blah, blah. She probably shouldn't read that. I don't know why I read that. Every, every, every podcast, I catch myself reading shit that I shouldn't read. And I hope nobody catches it. But I just made sure you did catch it. Shapiro, moving on from climate change, which is an area, as I said, where some people on the right are not particularly interested to, to areas where it seems like the left is militating against the advent of science. One of those areas is the area of transgenderism, where the argument, curiously, I have no transgender lenders in my book, Letter from Astrophysicist. It's true, nothing in the book. We've stayed now far from the topic of your book, but since I have you here and you're a science person, I'm going to ask you science me a little bit. But when it comes to transgenderism, the argument is typically made by gender theorists is that gender is entirely separate from sex. You've seen the argument made, it makes no difference to average if men are stronger than women are, that if we were allowed transgender women to compete with non-transgender women, then this would somehow not disadvantage biological women. This seems to be absolutely unscientific. 
that if we're actually going to have a discussion about gender and sex, that discussion should be based in data, which suggests that mammals are in fact binary in terms of their sex, unless you have intersex birth defect, typically, or genetic defects. Tyson, I'm happy to opine on this. This only matters because today we segregate nearly all sports by gender. Otherwise, why do we give, why do we even give an, a shit? What someone identifies with, we live in a free society, and with consenting adults and people, free expression of who and what they are. And he sidesteps it. I could read more, but it's just sidestepping. He's a fucking scientist. He fucking knows biology, science, everything we learned. My son, Zach in Tennessee, came over this weekend. Sorry, bud. His Badgers lost. Bad. My Ducks pulled it out. That'll be our lighter fare today. And my Packers. Holy shit. But he even said it. Why does everything revert back? And we have no gender, and it's all a construct made by the man. Why is there always male and female choices? You go to gay websites to buy shirts, male and female. If it's not, it's unisex. But we always revert back. And as we're going through this transgenderism craziness, the 95,000 pronoun day and this, that, and the other, why are they fighting so hard to be recognized as women? These men. You must recognize me as a woman. Why? I mean, the left needs to have a conference. They need to sit down. Put all the crazy in a you know put the, put all the crazy in a Kellogg cereal box, and come out with something, because you can't bust my balls for not giving women their due difference, and then giving men who pretend to be women due difference, and then bust my balls because I accidentally call somebody uh, ma'am and their pronoun is hooka I mean, what the fuck, dude? Pick a goddamn lane. So, we got more on this gender shit with the GQ we talked about last time uh, with uh, Pharrell wearing a, a fucking sleeping bag. I don't know what that is. Men's Magazine GQ introduces a new insane issue undermining masculinity. Style Magazine GQ is trying to usher in the next wave of gender, queer, apparel, and cosmetic choices, giving readers a full spread about how masculinity isn't that important at the concept of a man is pretty much just a faguzi anyway. It's just that. You're a men's magazine, guys. The outlet published an October 15 article breaking down traditional concepts of manhood, taking great pains to derail just how authoritarian, authoritarian capitalist society has manipulated us sheeple with its odious social construct. Oh, we are in for a treat. It's all part of GQ's new masculinity issue. It goes to show that if there was ever one priority of work of a male-oriented magazine, it's about rhetorically castrating your entire target demographic. GQ, testicle shriveled piece, consists of quotes about how masculinity is morphing and modernizing from 18 influential people, some of whom are, are women. Sounds convincing, especially when the piece comes coupled with a photo of an obvious female with nail polish wearing a man's plaid suit. The woman is actually non-binary actor Asia Kate Dillon, who has made headlines for playing Hollywood's first gender non-binary character, and we already talked about it. According to GQ, her pronouns are they, theirs, and they has a lot to say. It's not Dillon who's misunderstanding, it's all of us. Take this gem of a quote. For one person, masculinity might mean a dress and a face of makeup, because that's how they see themselves. They also believe that they 
has every right to speak out against gender norms because they oppressed Dylan when they was born. Dylan told the magazine, as someone who was assigned female at birth, I was already a marginalized person. And then on top of that, I'm queer and non-binary and trans. Basically, I picked out of the whole bag of Fruit Loops, so I have several marginalized identities. Oh, really? But she clarifies that she does have some privilege, white-bodied privilege to be exact. That means that when she's in a room of queer people of color, she has to listen to their complaints, not the other way around. In addition to Asia's Kate Dillon's wacky opinion, there's several other condescending man-hating women giving advice in their, this piece. You've got Al Freeman, a female artist who uses sculpture to explore the hyper-masculine culture of spaces like frat houses or bachelor pads. Good grief. Is that what men get for making fun of women at shopping malls or something? Oh, and you can't forget a lecture on masculinity from Me Too founder Tarina Burke, a woman who still insists that Kavanaugh's guilty. In it, they interviewed Pharrell, expresses regret over rapey, blurred lines that we live in a chauvinist society. Well, you didn't feel chauvinistic when you were cashing them checks, motherfucker. No. Mm -mm. You were good to go with that shit. The aforementioned Chick-fil-A we talked about in London, yeah, they already closed it down. Gay rights campaigners call for a boycott of Chick-fil-A, which opened its branch at Oracle Shopping Center, uh, wrote a report of the BBC. A spokesman for the Oracle Shopping Center told BBC the right thing to do was to prevent the fast food chain from doing business. We always look to introduce new concepts for our customers. However, we've decided on this occasion that the right thing to do is to only allow Chick-fil-A to trade with us for an initial six-month pilot period and not to extend the lease any further. Reading Pride expressed delight over the good news, saying six-month period was reasonable request to allow for resettlement and notice for employees to have move other jobs. Chick-fil-A told BBC that the organization has donated to Christian groups for youth and education, noting they serve as a home to a diverse number of people. There are 145,000 black, white, straight, gay, Christian, non-Christian who represent Chick-fil-A, but you jackasses can't get over it. No. They can't get over it. So... It wasn't Chick-fil-A. It was the mall going, we don't want this bullshit here. Good job. Way to bend to the mob. New York Times decides which groups are Islamophobic. Shouldn't meet at Mar-a-Lago. Not going to read it. It's a whole fucking thing. New York Times talking to me about it. They they, they were pushing care in this article. I, I, I can't. I just can't. I can't. Abortion doctor doesn't get the big deal about changing procedures to get more viable hearts, lungs, and livers. A Planned Parenthood doctor was secretly recorded stating she changed abortion techniques to get intact heart, lungs, and livers to sell. Has defended her comments in San Francisco courtroom. Dr. Nibra Nikulas from Senior Director of Medical Service of Planned Parenthood Federation of America told the court this week that she believed the comments she made to David Dalden and Sandra Merritt in an undercover video was no big deal. Dr. Nakuto was giving evidence, I said her name different this time because I have no fun clue, uh, giving evidence in a lawsuit taken by Planned Parenthood trying to get over them for showing the truth. Despite detailing the harvesting of baby organs, skulls, and other body parts and changing procedures without patient permission to make them more intact and valuable, the court heard Dr. Nakula didn't get the big deal and didn't think there was anything wrong in the video what she said. Dalden set up a fake company, blah, 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 what do we know about this? And so they're trying to sue him and shut him the fuck up because we can't have that shit. 
And that goes off our crunchy soundbite from last podcast. But here's CBS doing their abortion shit. Louisiana could become the first state in the country without access to abortion as soon as next year. The Supreme Court will consider a challenge to Louisiana's so-called Unsafe Abortion Protection Act. The decision could end abortion services at Louisiana's last remaining clinics. So if abortion is federally protected, how is this possible? So Roe v. Wade legalizes abortion, but it leaves a lot of room for states to regulate the procedure. And how far a state can go is exactly what the Supreme Court will be considering next year. If Louisiana is successful in effectively regulating abortion out of existence, it could provide a roadmap for other anti-abortion states to follow. They're fucking sick, people. You know what else is sick? Sick? Sorry about that. The 7-0 49ers. Zoe, the 49ers emotional support puppy, is the team's cutest MVP. I, I just wanted to read the title. I'm not going to read the article. I, I just think that sums up a San Francisco team. Emotional support puppy. Of course, if my Packers start losing, you might hear me go, well, where's ours? Maybe we need it. Avengers star Elizabeth Olsen, we need all representation of superheroes. Actress Elizabeth Olsen, known for her role as Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch in the Avengers franchise, announced her assignment to see the superhero genre to become more inclusive regarding racial and sexual diversity. I think it's important to have all representation of superheroes on the big screen. Now more than ever, said Olsen, I feel like we're moving and we're making change, and I've always just felt it's hard for me to say I have been treated so and so way because I'm female at work because I've always had a lucky experience. Olsen added that people of color and sexual minorities have not had the same lucky experiences, which makes sense when considering she's the younger sister of twin duo Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, two of the biggest child stars of the 90s. But I do believe that I know and understand that that's not the universal experience. I feel like it's women, it's women of color, it's men of color. I feel like it's representing different sexualities. I just feel like now people are listening, people are paying attention, so now it's opportunity to pander. Yeah. Lost your childhood spark? Survey reveals life is least fun at age 45. I totally agree with that. that that's pretty good. Opinion. The voice from our Nest camera threatened to steal our baby. A father Google Nest camera and hacked and found out this happens frequently. This is horrible. Somebody hacked their shit and talk through it. I'm just thinking that's a bad, bad day. That, As days go, that's a horrible day. I, I just think that would just fucking suck. Inside porn, scary death threat epidemic. You're always looking over your shoulder. Hmm, let's read. Uh, influencer's successful career in limelight requires thick skin and ability to endure hate-spiked messages from insecure and anonymous. Controversial celebrities like porn stars make particularly easy targets within a sex-obsessed culture that promoters shame and desire stead, vilify what it cannot possess or police. Some porn consumers feel particularly entitled in their hate, projecting their self-gratifying guilt and moral qualms onto another person they never met but will gleefully call a whore, a dehumanizing tactic to solidify their moral 
uh, and righteousness, sorry, and justified death threats. Tata's the one's most downfall BBW star, Sophie Rose, embodies, embodies the concept of unfettered beauty, no longer handcuffed to societal pressures. As a reigning BBW XXX performer of the year, Rose continues to defy conventional stereotypes, and then she goes in to talk about how people are threatening her, and she feels like she may die. Because of internet trolls. Mm. I don't think so. But let's go into Military Corner. Haven't heard that soundbite in a long time. Air Force nurse pleads guilty in TRICARE fraud scream. Major Romanatis Moss, a nurse at the medical unit at Vance Air Force Base in Eded, literally was getting kickbacks and stealing money. You, you don't hear that a lot. Not for military members. Navy's doomsday plane hits a bird, suffers $2 million in damage. A Navy doomsday aircraft that would play a vital communication role in the event of a nuclear war had one of its four engines replaced this month after a bird strike. The E-6B Mercury, a nuclear command and control plane, hit the bird at Naval Air Station Patuxent River on October 2nd. The aircraft, which belongs to the Air Test and Evaluation Squadron 20, was landing on a runway while conducting a touch-and-go and hit the frickin' bird. The engine had to be replaced. That's $2 million for an engine? Holy fuck. New Army Chief wants to let soldiers stay longer on active duty. This is a great, great article. Basically, what they're going to try to do is when you get a home station, which used to be back in the day, you set up a home station, and you would go overseas and go back to that home station. And that's what he's talking. McConville, the ex-101st Airborne Division um, commanding general, says, I don't see why people can't stay four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. It used to be that way. I was the anomaly. Every two years, they picked my ass up and moved me in tw- over my 20, which was fucking horseshit. Bull pupper belt fed. Prototypes for Army's next squad. Next-gen squad weapons finally revealed. The U.S. Army Next Generation squad weapons effort looked at a lot more possible this week with three competing weapons. Army officials as well as the companies in competition have been guarded with the specific details, but the end result were equipped combat squads with weapons that fire specially designed 6.8-millimeter projectile capable of penetrating enemy body armor at ranges well beyond current 5.56 rounds. There's previously been a glimpse of the weapons from two firms, but this year's AUSA was the first time all three competitors displayed their prototype weapons, which are distinctly different from one another. Um, in fact, there were some aspects of last year's AUSA, AUSA where some would say what we were pursuing was unachievable, but I guess that's bullshit. 
The Army plans to select a final design for both weapons from a single company in the first quarter of 2022 and start putting them in the field in 2023. The first one, the General Dynamics Bullpup. The team from General Dynamics unveiled his bullpup-style NGSW rifle, an AR prototype, a design which puts the magazine and bolt carrier group behind the pistol grip and trigger group, which is really odd. While popular in part of the world, the bullpup design is never really caught in the U.S. or the military. Um, General Dynamics Next Generation Squad Weapon Rifle Variant. The reason we ended up with a bullpup is because when they are tech talking about all the stuff we're not supposed to talk about, the velocities, the effects downrange are going to be required to push the projectile, we came back and said, what do we need? We need barrel length. The rifle variant features a 20-inch barrel, which an AR version has a 22-inch barrel, but both weapons are still very compact, he said, adding that the rifle is shorter than an M4A1 and the AR is shorter than the M249. Fully extended 33-inch M4A1 has a 14.5-inch barrel and the M249's 36-inch para version has a barrel length of 16. Personally, I have concerns about the acceptance of the bullpup design, but I think that sort of eliminates with a lot of user feedbacks. Similar like other company competitors, excuse me, kept some design details vague, such as the weight, except to say the rifle is under 10 pounds, and the squad automatic weapon variant be under 11, which is amazing. General Dynamics, a team with True Velocity, produced a composite-cased 6.8-millimeter cartridge. For gun-making expertise, GD joined with Beretta USA, which made the U.S. Army M9 pistol. All fire controls are ambidextrous, like the rifle version. The AR is magazine-fed, said Sims, who added that the designers have decided on a rate of fire yet. We're going between 500 and 750 shots per minute on the AR. GD has chosen Delta P designs to make a suppressors for both prototypes, which are made from a hardened Inconel alloy for extreme lightweight. The last one, Textron's Case Telescopic Weapons. Textron Systems Next Generation Squad Rifle Variant is a sexy motherfucker. That's not in the article. The belt-fed Textron System NGSW AR variant and the magazine-fed rifle variant both rely on the company's case telescopic cartridge design it developed. Um, Textron has developed a CT technology in 5.56, 7.62, and 6.5, and now 6.8. The technology uses a plastic case rather than a brass case to hold the propellant in the projectile, resulting in a significant weight savings. Dude! Big-time weight savings. The team from Textron includes Heckler & Koch, the maker of the Marine Corps' M27 infantry automatic rifle, and the Olin Winchester for its small caliber ammunition production capabilities. Prender would not discuss specific details about Textron's NGSW prototypes, such as the operating system, rate of fire, barrel lengths. The auto rifle weighs less than 12 pounds, and more traditionally styled rifle weighs less than 9 pounds. Yeah. <clears throat> That is just fucking amazing, dude. Amazing! Plastic case would save so much weight. It really would. It doesn't seem like a lot over time, but when you're carrying, you know, I had seven and I had ten in my backpack. So, 17 magazines, 30 rounds of 5.56 is a lot of weight. Eleven men, many in the military, attacked or sexually assaulted in North Carolina City, police say. Wow. The men, including some members of the military, were attacked in downtown Wilmington in eastern North Carolina around the time bars closed for the night. 
Police have now identified four victims who may have been sexually assaulted. The assaults are believed to stretch back to July, excuse me, January 2018 with sporadic timing in between, according to Wilmington Police. The common thing about all 11 of these people is a cognitive impairment where the victims don't remember anything. All they remember is being in a bar that they end up waking up the next day somewhere in the downtown area not remembering anything that happened. Crime scene locations and other details are limited due to the condition of the victim at the time the incident happened. Officers join state and federal agencies to investigate what the hell's going on. Dude! Can you imagine fucking just waking up and being ass-raped? That's just a bad day, dude. That's a bad day. I'm just saying... I got, I'm old. I have enough problem with constipation and GERD and all the other digestive problems. I think getting ass raped would probably suck. I'm just saying. Bad case of bullying. British soldier jailed. Wait for it. For excessive nipple twisting. That's a thing. Dan's provocateur, Chubby Checker, might have never penned the lyrics to his 1960 hit, The Twist, if he knew nearly 60 years later, a maniacal British soldier would punitively apply the words to the wary nipples of chest-clenching subordinates. British Army Lance Sergeant Liam Cruz Taylor has been jailed for a six-month period after admitting to a series of allegations of punching, elbowing, and twisting the nipples of soldiers under his charge. My wife doesn't listen. But if she did, I'm telling you right now, you're on record, young lady. Now that I know they can file charges for nipple twisting, I am going to file charges. It's sexual harassment in our house. Every night we have a traditional kiss that we've done for like 10 years. There's multiple kisses and you say stuff. It's it's just an inside thing. But at the end of it, she always pitches my nipples. And I don't like it. I didn't mind when she used to fucking hit me in the junk. I kind of like that. That was kind of cool. But the nipple twistings got to stop. Just saying. So, there's our fun up front. We're going to go to a music break. We're going old school school rap. And how can you not play old school rap without some vanilla motherfucking is ice up in the his ice? And when we come back in, it is going to be hate first. Got a great soundbite of some more Antifa protesters this week. Yeah, you, you, you just gotta love it. Yo, VIP. Let's kick it. And listen, I sit back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly, flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow to the extreme. I rock a mic like a vandal, light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance, caress a speaker that booms. I'm killing your brain like a poisonous mushroom. Deadly, when I play a dope melody, anything less than the best is a felony. Love it or leave it. You better gain weight. You better hit bulls out of kid. Don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Got the hook while my DJ revolves it. Now that the party is jumping with the bass kick 
cooking them seeds like a pound of bacon. Burning them, being quick and nimble. I go crazy when I hear a cymbal and a hi hat with a souped up tempo. I'm on a roll, it's time to go solo. Rolling, in my 5.0, put my rag top down so my hair can blow. The girl is on standby, waiting just to say hi. Did you stop? No, I just drove by, kept on. Pursuing to the next stop. I bust a left and I'm heading to the next block. The block was dead, yo. So I continue to A1A. It's trying to be. Girls were hot, wearing less than bikinis. Rock men lovers, driving Lamborghinis. Jealous. Cause I'm out getting mine. Shade with the gauge and vanilla with the nine. Ready for the chumps on the wall. The chumps acting ill because I'm full of eight ball. Gunshots ranged out like a bell. I grabbed my nine, all I heard was shell. Falling on the concrete real fast. Jumped in my car, slammed on the gas. Bumper to bumper, the avenue's Jack is Jack, police on the scene, you know what I mean? They pass me up, can run it all, I don't think if there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook when my DJ revolves it. at the media bubble one podcast at a time here's tony reed come fly with me let's fly let's fly away if you can use some exotic booze there's a bar in far bombay come on and fly with me let's fly let's fly away It's a now iconic picture taken as Nancy Pelosi stood up to walk out of a meeting with the president, released by the White House to diminish the speaker. She immediately turned it into a badge of courage and her cover photo. At that moment, I was probably saying, all roads lead to Putin. 
a woman warrior cheered today by Democratic women supporters. That cabinet room meeting on Syria dissolving into insults as the president called the speaker a third-rate politician. I pray for the president all the time. Now we have to pray for his health because this was a very serious meltdown on the part of the president. He responding hours later on Twitter. She had a total meltdown in the White House today. It was very sad to watch. Pray for her. She's a very sick person. It's a relationship that started with his grudging respect, but went downhill quickly, a showdown over the shutdown. Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting. Then he walked out of a meeting with her when she wouldn't fund his border wall. I'm a mother of five, grandmother of nine. I know a temper tantrum when I see one. Even her applause at the State of the Union seen as a clapback. Ah, Antifa protester. Kill cops. Yeah. And the media gushing over disrespect of the president by Nancy Pelosi. There's also a meme going around with the our betters in Hollywood, and it's Nancy Pelosi's stiletto goring Trump. It's not violence on Twitter. It's just fine. Nobody has a problem. But I want us to go back in the way back you know, machine, kind of like Wayne's World. Diddly doo, diddly doo, diddly doo. And let's remember what it was like when a Arizona governor pointed her finger at the dear one, Barack Hussein Obama. Day culminated with this now iconic photo of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. With this now instant iconic photo. Look at that photo of one woman. Standing up. Standing in a room full of men. Standing among a room full of men. Standing among a room full of men. A room full of men. At a table with all men there. With her finger pointed directly at the president. Challenging the president. You're taking on the president. With her finger pointed at the president. Giving it to the president of the United States. It's this picture with the Republican governor's finger in the president's face that has Jan Brewer on the defensive today. The idea that someone could do that to the president is just so off-putting. Sticking her finger in the face of the president of the United States, something I was taught at five years old, you don't do because it's disrespectful. Jabbing her finger in the president's face again and again. Jan Brewer is waving her finger in his face. Shaking her finger in the president's nose. And she waved her finger at the president's face on purpose. Incredibly disrespectful. Incredibly disrespectful. Even if you don't like someone, you don't do that. That's, that's a general consensus. The now infamous finger wag. I mean, the now infamous wagging of her finger. All that many saw in that famous photograph was a white woman wagging her finger at the first black president. What's wrong with this picture? Would they do this to a white president? Question: don't think would have happened to a white president. Of course not. But hates the president so much that they don't even have respect for the office. It's a now iconic picture taken as Nancy Pelosi stood up to walk out of a meeting with the president. Released by the White House to diminish the speaker. She immediately turned it into a badge of courage and her cover photo. At that moment, I was probably saying, all roads lead to Putin. A woman warrior cheered today by Democratic women supporters. That cabinet room meeting on Syria dissolving into insults as the president called the speaker a third-rate politician. I pray for the president all the time. Now we have to pray for his health, because this was a very serious meltdown on the part of the president. He responding hours later on Twitter. She had a total meltdown in the White House today. It was very sad to watch. Pray for her. She's a very sick person. 
It's a relationship that started with his grudging respect, but went downhill quickly, a showdown over the shutdown. Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting. Then he walked out of a meeting with her when she wouldn't fund his border wall. I'm a mother of five, grandmother of nine. I know a temper tantrum when I see one. Even her applause at the State of the Union seen as a clapback. Yeah, sandwiched in between those two. Oh, it's iconic. It's just iconic. It's okay to disrespect the president. Washington Free Beacon reminds us all of lefty double standards between Brewer and Pelosi. Andrew Krugel released Friday morning the site's latest indispensable supercut. This time the topic centered around the not surprising but nonetheless horrible bias double standard between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi waving a finger at President Trump and Jan Brewer doing it in 2012. Waving your finger at the President of the United States is disrespectful only if the President is a Democrat. According to members of the media, Krugel began. Pelosi received positive coverage when she and other Democratic leaders stormed out of a meeting with Trump. In the video, Pelosi's soundbites include Morning Joe's Mika Brzezinski, which I did it, among a room full of men, while CNN's Dana Bash swooned, look at that photo of one woman standing up, giving it to the President of the United States. But when it came to Brewer, there were no proclamations, but no denunciations. And I won't break it down. Um, Ed show fucking CBS Evening News, the coarseness of our culture in the age of social media, demonstrating a public rudeness. Americans are better than this little incident. Perhaps most ironically was that such finger-pointing was done to Obama predecessor George W. Bush in 2006. Brian Williams interviewed Bush and grew annoyed himself, so he pointed his left index and almost jabbed Bush in the chest to say that this was something new, earth-shattering, and worthy of saying some things like slay queen be quite simply dishonest. For the liberal media, they only demand respect for presidents they like while applauding encouraging scorn for presidents they hate. Remember when Republicans protest, it's astroturf. When Democrats protest, it's all grassroots. It's the people's voice. Donald Trump hogtied in graphic billboard in Times Square. Three years of Donald Trump's presidency, anti-Trump imagery is common, but being lampooned on the cover of Time on multiple occasions in New York Magazine just squashed him under a giant peach. But the athletic wear company, Devani's new out-of-home campaign features a more graphic depiction of the president with a series of images that depict Trump tied up on toilet or shushed by women, fed up with the actions and the rhetoric of the White House. In an image titled Lady Liberty running on Times Square billboard, middle school teacher and Marine Corps veteran, Micah, Michael Mesa, Binds a convincing Trump impersonator, her barefoot planted firmly on his face in a vignette inspired by the superhero Wonder Woman. Another model for the campaign is Chloe Mason, Chief Communication Officer Devani, who appears in warrior and tree yoga poses, silencing a bound Trump with one finger. Another photo, the president is seated on a gold toilet, pants around his ankles as his smartphone is grabbed out of his hand. Media buys what is intended to be controversial ad posed a few challenges. Vendors sell space in Times Squares, but billboard owners, 
billboard owners can also refuse specific ads. We were able to work with our vendor and reach a consensus on the level of facial obfuscation that would appease the landlord and get his bold pull no punches, call to arms, creative up and in front of potentially millions of like-minded Americans. The companies say the workers have been upset by the presence and position of the Title X gag rule and not pushing a bunch of abortion. And of course, Columbia, the company out of Willamette, helped sponsor it. And that's Willamette Valley, Oregon. But it's it's okay. Biden, Joe Biden campaign now selling Beat Him Like a Drum t-shirts. Yeah. Beto O'Rourke selling This is Fucked Up, Moms Demand Action t-shirts. But my favorite t-shirt is Trump's. Get over it. But they can't. They cannot get over it. Their hate is too strong. One of the things I didn't talk about when I was in London was I was in the war rooms and I got into an argument with a Trump supporter. Underground. Underground. Joy, yeah. trip, really. And I yeah. know, there's a lot going on. And anyway, all he said to me was, why can't you give him a chance the way we gave Obama a chance? I give him a chance? He's destroying the planet. He's destroying the democracy. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's writing stupid letters to Erdogan. He's killing people who are far away from us, who did, or did nothing but help us. Yeah. Give him a chance? That's the argument you're giving me, underground? Women, he calls her nervous Nancy. She has nothing to be nervous about. Yeah, you're the you know idiot what? who's being impeached. But do you do you worry about the fact that she's calling into question his message? Uh, what? Do you, do you worry about the fact that, that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is is questioning his mental state? Well, he I mean, are we in Twenty Fifth Amendment? Everyone's praying for each other now? right now. Well, well I, praying. I think, a lot of praying. Well, I don't know. I President Nancy. I think part of his problem is if you want to say that she got overheated in the meeting, which by the way, it doesn't look like that in the picture. No. Calling a woman unhinged is to me like calling a woman shrill. Talking about her warming up, it's a deeply sexist thing to say about Speaker Pelosi. So I can't take what you're saying seriously. She's scared. She looks like a doing. boss in that picture. Yeah. She doesn't look like she's melting down at all. Yeah. Look at the only woman in that picture. She's standing up. She's pointing. I, I tell you what. It's actually it's the responsibility of the people that show up at those rallies to not be stupid. Uh, do not be so stupid Good that they should that be kept away from blenders. All they have to do is spend three seconds actually watching the news. All they have to do is spend three seconds on Google. All they have to do is spend three seconds uh, talking to somebody uh, that is not completely brainwashed to see that this is a horrible deal for the Kurds. The Kurds are going to be wiped out. Uh, and Donald Trump said it was a great deal for Turkey because now Turkey doesn't have to kill millions of people. I mean, again, it, it is so absolutely flummoxing what the president said this week and there is the responsibility i you know sure it's with the president but at this point it's with the people cheering and 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 waving waving things uh it, it trump flags in the audience they have a responsibility to not be dumb and uh, they have a responsibility to be informed. They have a responsibility not to be ignorant and all i'm all i'm asking is that they just spend two or three minutes well, actually <clears throat> looking at the news and educating themselves because if you were at that rally last night everything just about everything <clears throat> the president told you about the Kurds about Turkey about the Middle East was a lie and we're all going to pay for it you're gonna pay for it we're gonna pay for it our children are gonna pay for it our country's going to pay for it with the rise of ISIS 
This is coming again. The Pentagon warned the president a month ago that ISIS was going to rise again if we didn't hold a tough line. The president has quivered and collapsed again. He's been a collaborator with Vladimir Putin. He's been a collaborator with Erdogan. He's been a collaborator with all of our enemies. He's strengthened Iran. He's weakened our closest allies. You need to read some news. Even you trust, read your local newspaper. Go on Google. Don't go to those stupid sites where people just make things up. Read, read, read the news because we're all going to pay for this for years to come. Cummings, who was chairman of the powerful House Oversight Committee, spent the past few years battling health issues and President Trump. Those in highest levels of the government must stop invoking fear, using racist language, and encouraging reprehensible behavior. He denounced the president's immigration policy that separated parents and children at the border. We are better than that. We are so much better. And he fought back when the president called his Baltimore district a rodent-infested mess. I do not have time for people who want to trash our city. But today, the president praised Cummings, tweeting, His work and voice will be very hard, if not impossible, to replace. After riots broke out in Baltimore four years ago, Cummings took the lead in trying to restore order. Community activist Anthony Presley says Cummings never strayed from his roots. We saw him every day. He walked the streets. He went to the local churches here. He was just a part of Baltimore. He wasn't from Baltimore. He was of Baltimore. In a statement, Cummings' wife, Maya, said he worked until his last breath because he believed our democracy was the highest and best expression of our collective humanity. Nora? A huge loss indeed, Chip. Thank you. The problem is they hate us. They hate anybody. I mean, we talked about Cummings' last podcast, but it hasn't stopped. Celebs using Cummings' death as a weapon against Trump. If you want to go online for earnest celebrations and posts of gratitude for the life of Congressman Elijah Cummings, go anywhere other than Celebrity Twitter. After Cummings' untimely death, many of Hollywood's usual suspects made a lot of noise because it was a way to slam Trump. Uh, let's get into what they fucking said. Uh, this article's a little long. I don't want to read all this shit. Mm-mm-mm. Deborah Messing, the Will and Grace star, was just waiting for Trump to say something, anything about the deceased congressman, and she lost out over Trump's nice guy tweet, stating, this is pathetic. You can't pretend to be a human being now after what you've said about Elijah Cummings in the past. What did he say? He was a partisan fucking racist act. Those are facts. Unhinged Twitter Bent Mindler went to the same route. She used Cummings' grave as a soapbox for more tweets against her orange obsession, writing, POTUS posts a phony eulogy to Cummings, who died today, after trashing Mr. Cummings, a leader of civil rights movement, and calling his district rat-infested. This repulsive biped has the gall to pretend to admire him. It makes her sick. Impeachment obsessive Rob Reiner was up to his usual BS. He tweeted about the death of Cummings, but only for the sake of being able to blast Trumps again. America had a great loss today, Elijah Cummings. When we're dancing with the angels and the questions will be asked in 2019, what do we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Faced with the greatest corruption in U.S. history, we honor him by honoring his word. Uh. Ed Asner, Jesus Christ. 
He tweeted, I always hurt to lose great leaders, but it hurts more when they're of this time of great need. Michael Moore, I'm stunned and saddened by this death. He couldn't have been taken from us at the worst time. Yeah. Then the New York Times just handed their op-ed section to John Lithgow, titled, Trump is a bad president. He's even worse entertainer. And then goes on to tell us what he thinks of Donald Trump, and not only a horrible president, but he's also a lousy entertainer. He's not funny. He makes no sense of irony. He's not self-aware. He can't take a joke. Unlike the master thespians like Lithgow. I call Donald Trump an entertaining president advisor since he has proved himself to be such an inept public service. Over the years, he has thrust himself in the public eye with the flamboyant astronics of later-day P.T. Barnum. Part of this is the amoral tradecraft of New York real estate developer, but a lot of it springs from the appetites of a voracious attention-getter. As a bad president as Mr. Trump has been, he's even worse entertainer. He reads scripts like... Lines like panic-stricken schoolboy in a middle school assembly. He mangles every attempt at irony, self-mockery, or, God forbid, an actual joke. The wretched excesses of Mr. Trump's slapstick presidency and the rabid audience he commands. See, it's always about the audience. The daring TV comics who gleefully turn Mr. Trump's outrages against him every night of the week. Stephen Colbert, Oliver, and Smith, and others. They're smart, informed, and disciplined, self-aware, and generally funny. Not a single item in the day's news goes unexamined by these warrior satirists. And unlike the late-night comfort food of days past, their comedy is highlighted by the bright fire of their anger. Soon, with any luck, journalism and entertainment will act in concert with an energizing voting public to bring an end to the Trump nightmare. Really. Really. That's newsworthy? Hmm. This was newsworthy. CNN. Contemporary Christian music stars are cop-outs for failing to denounce Trumps. See, it's always about religion. Liberal Network routinely expresses disgust that Christian conservatives aren't speaking out against Trump, somehow missing the dramatic difference between the policy stands of Trump and the Democrats who now stand in favor of repealing tax exemptions for churches and other radical stands against traditional religion. On Tuesday, CNN.com John Blank singled out contemporary Christian musicians as cop-outs for failing to denounce Trump and somehow wasting their energy with upbeat praise and worship music. The headline, Why Christian Music Biggest Stars Refuse to Change Their Tune on the Trump Era. Critics have skewered why evangelist for their steadfast support of Trump, a man that author Ben Howe says he flouted Christian values and lived most of his life actively and unapologetically in the opposite of them. But there is one group of evangelical leaders who have largely escaped scrutiny, stars of contemporary Christian music, also known as CCM. These CCM stars pack megachurches, amass big social media followings, and command some of the biggest platforms in the evangelical world. Michael W. Smith has sold more than 15 million albums and sang at the 20, 2004 Republican National Convention, while singer Chris Tomlin has sold 8 million albums and fills Madison Square Garden. What most striking about these artists, though, is not what they sing, it's what they leave out of their songs, Christians or cop-outs. The Americans these artists love to invoke in their songs is stuck in what one columnist calls a hideous loop of hate. White supremacists march in public chanting, Jews will not replace us. A man guns down Latina shoppers in El Paso. Shooting School shootings now seem almost as frequent as proms. The president demonizes immigrants and tweets racist insults. These issues aren't just political, they're moral. Yet little of these ugly realities make their way into Christian music. 
Blake allowed the view that some Christian artists simply do not get involved in politics, perhaps following a passage in Romans 13 where St. Paul declared Christians must obey those who rule over you because they have been placed there by God. But he also suggests they may be afraid of losing their livelihood appearing in evangelical venues where criticism of Trump would be controversial. He also cited that in the CCM world, fans call out artists who stray from traditional beliefs. Dan Hasseling, lead singer for the group Jars of Clay, was mauled on Twitter after he questioned why gays shouldn't marry in a series of posts. The CNN writer doesn't quote the words Hasseling tweeted in 2014. I'm trying to make sense of the conservative argument, but it doesn't hold up to basic scrutiny. Feel akin to women's suffrage. I just don't see a negative effect to allowing gay marriage. No societal breakdown, no war or traditional marriage. Anyone? Blake also compared this to the Dixie Chicks, who alienated their country music fans by attacking President Bush, although they became immediately media darlings for it. Unsurprisingly, Blake turned to the socialist Reverend Jim Wallace, who was only described as activist. Wallace cited Matthew 25 and suggested that Christian musicians weren't very Christian. They would be like Jesus saying, I was going to talk to you today about the poor, the hungry, and the strangers, but I'm not going to because that could seem political. And the beat goes on. We keep beating up any subgroup that may vote for Trump and demeaning them. They just can't stop over on CNN. They're out of people to demean. They've demeaned whites, married folk, pro-life, Christians. It just doesn't matter. They can't stop themselves. They just can't. Which takes us to Warren again. If we can lie in Facebook ads and get away with it, we know that campaign finance laws are not equipped to address online political advertising. My plan would modernize campaign finance laws for the digital age. If you're ready to regulate political ads on the Internet, sign up. So your plan includes the establishment of the Ministry of Truth, and that's what they're doing. They're upset that Facebook for this election cycle... Has said they're not getting involved. They're not gonna, they're not gonna suppress free speech. But that's where the left wants to go. Remember, New York Times a couple podcasts ago, free speech is killing us. They can't get through to everybody. So, CNN makes New York Times look like conservatives. Brian Seltzer touts liberal funded nonprofit news organization joining forces. It is interesting to see liberal outlets like CNN praising the praise of non-profit news outlets like ProPublica and Texas Tribune, particularly because these entities happen to have be funded almost exclusively by some of the biggest liberal organizations, including George Soros Open Society. Left-wing anchor Brian Seltzer drooled October 15 that the liberal ProPublica is thought to be the gold standard of non-profit investigating journalism, and that the Texas Tribune is a model for non-profit news startups. He noted that both organizations were coming together to launch a co-branded investigative reporting unit, and they were hiring 11 people to do it. Typical Seltzer-style promoting liberal propaganda without qualification. He left out that both organizations have been heavily funded by major liberal organizations over the years. We know Texas better than anyone. ProPublica knows investigative journalism better than anybody. And the commercial jingle, Candy Senses, is two great tastes that taste great together. And may be, though, that this collaboration would only taste great to liberals and the liberal organizations that fund them. Below are some of the major liberal organizations that have either contributed to ProPublica and the Texas Tribune. 
Soros Open Society, Soros Foundation to Promote Open Society, John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Ford, Pierre Omadere Democratic Democracy Fund, Pierre Omadere, Omadere Network Fund, Bill and Melinda Gates, Craig Newmark, Craigslist Charitable Fund, um, Foundation to Promote Open Society, John S. and John L. Knight Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Collectively, the organizations listed above have given at least 24747000 to ProPublica. It's a straight-up liberal rag. Then, in response to the Veritas, Seltzer tries Jedi mind trick on exposed CNN tapes. No, they're there. See, uh, CNN media correspondent Brian Seltzer completely dismissed the Project Veritas tapes, exposing CNN in a podcast with Charles Sykes of the Trump-hating site The Bulwark. In response to a softball from Sykes 22 minutes into the chat, Seltzer touts CNN spokesman Matt Dornick simply tweeting yawn in reaction. I don't think O'Keefe has published anything surprising or newsworthy. There's no there there to the claims O'Keefe is promoting. By contrast, Seltzer started the interview by trying to claim Shep Smith stepping down for Fox is a severe blow to the channel somehow because news has been squeezed out. Even Seltzer admits it was one poorly rated hour in a cable news day. Wishful thinking, in every day's rating, CNN takes a severe blow from Fox. Some snippets were so amazing, like CNN employees discussing how Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo hate Trump. We knew that. The Jeff Zucker recording were the most interesting, like insisting impeachment just had to be a channel main focus. Don't lose sight of what the biggest story is. As Timothy Meads point out at Town Hall, they're pushing themselves as your impeachment Trump channel, and we did it. And within those videos that we played last time, are also that they hope Trump dies. But it's where we're going. Amazon makes aggressive push into election security experts concern. With experts warning about hackers and inside sabotage, and Amazon expands its business of elections, should America voters worry Amazon Web Services increasingly become involved with both state and local elections, noted Reuters in an article titled How Amazon.com Moves into the Business of Elections. More than 40 states now use one or more Amazon election offerings, according to a presentation given by Amazon executives this year. Not going to read the rest of the article, but that's scary. That's just outright scary. We already have Google pushing the electorate up to 10% every cycle. We have Google making sure you can't search shit. I mean, seriously, I said on last podcast, looking for the Cummings negative, you couldn't get it. You just couldn't get that in any of the pages. They pushed over 100,000 Trump bad say things about black men. That's where they went with my search. But you have Amazon not getting involved. You have Tom Steyer pumping money into elections and spending $47 million on his own campaign. You have Soros. And you don't get the Coke treatment. You don't hear about this. You don't even hear about how this is probably bad for us, our elections. Sorry, I didn't mean to... <laughs> Drink my smoothie and make noise. I mean, it's just horrible. Before it's all said and done in my lifetime, there won't be a fox. 
Because if Democrats win control of everything, they're going to deregulate. They're going to regulate to an extent that you won't be able to have conservative news. They want the Ministry of Truth. They want they want total control of all thought. That's their goal. To other things that scare me less but make me laugh. Remember, on the left, if you step out of line, you're fucked. You're just fucked. So, Hillary Clinton won't go away. And her next target, Tulsi Gabbard, of all people. Now to an extraordinary development in the presidential campaign. Hillary Clinton, the 2016 nominee, called Tulsi Gabbard, one of the current candidates, quote, the favorite of the Russians. Nancy Cordes is following this. And Nancy, what are we to make about all this? Well, Nora, Hillary Clinton did not mention Tulsi Gabbard by name, but an aide confirms that that's who she was talking about when she made this stunning claim that the Russians had already hit on a way to meddle in the 2020 election, much in the same way they meddled in her election in 2016. On a podcast interview, Clinton said, quote, they're grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her so far. Clinton was referring to the fact that the Hawaii Congresswoman gets a lot of attention from Kremlin-linked media, just as Green Party candidate Jill Stein did back in 2016. Uh, before, before I let you go, I was curious if you had any reaction to uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton implying that um, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard might be a Russian asset. What I'll say is that uh, uh, I'm not going to get into their dispute. What I will say is that we know right now is it appropriate? Well, I suppose when you become a private citizen, you can say whatever you oh, want. I understand but that. But she's I was a sitting member of Congress. She she served. Well, I certainly honor her service. Uh, as we saw in the debate, I also have strong disagreements with her on topics like Syria. I, I just wonder if you're comfortable. To, I mean, sh- sh- throw a charge out there making her deny it. That's a Trump. That's a Trumpian move. Well, we got to focus on the task at hand right now. And that includes making sure that this presidency comes to an end. That is my focus. That and what happens after this presidency comes to an end. So you're comfortable with Hillary Clinton's critique of Tulsi Gabbard and how she went about it? No, I'm not. I'm also not going to get in the middle of it because we as a party and as a country have to focus on the future. Tonight, Hillary Clinton pushes her own Russia conspiracy theory. In a recent podcast, Clinton says Russians are grooming a 2020 presidential contender. That candidate is Tulsi Gabbard. Here's Hillary Clinton. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic (laughs) primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her Mm -hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian uh, asset. Okay, so just just a fact, huh? Tulsi Gabbard's a Russian asset, and Jill Stein's a Russian asset. Alfred Now Van Jones, host of the Van Jones Show, so that's that's how she puts it out there. I mean, uh, I'm, she's playing a very dangerous game. <clears throat> I mean, Hillary Clinton. Uh, if you're concerned about disinformation, if you're concerned, what the Russians do is they they spread disinformation, they get us divided against each other. That is what just happened. Just throw out some information, disinformation, smear somebody. She is Hillary Clinton. She's a legend. She is, she's going to be in the history books. She's a former nominee of our party. And she just came out against a sitting U.S. congresswoman, a decorated war veteran, and somebody who's running for the nomination of our party. 
with just a complete smear and no facts. I, I, she called her Russian asset <clears throat> as a fact. And as you point out, sitting U.S. A, a sitting U.S. Congresswoman. Now, mm-hmm. this is not this is a very, very dangerous game. And there's a backstory here. And there's two sides to every story. Let's not forget Tulsi Gabbard was picked out by the Democratic Party establishment and put at the top of the DNC. They thought she was going to be their golden girl. And she got in, in that position, the DNC, and she looked around. She saw Debbie Wasserman Schultz and other people, Clinton allies, doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing in the primary. And, he, and, and Tulsi publicly quit and then yeah. endorsed Bernie Sanders. And it's been payback hell ever since. And that's since. what we are here. But payback I mean, hell ever you know, since. You know, um, uh, Gabbard's responded with a tweet storm. She says, thank you, Hillary Clinton. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know it was always you. Through your proxies and powerful allies and the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose, it's now clear this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. Yeah, you know, uh, getting kind of hot. It's getting kind of hot. And, and this, is, this is a problem. You know, we're headed down this spiral staircase. You know, you had uh, a Pelosi and Trump. Uh, you had a big blow up there. Whoever you blame. You can't be proud of America when you have food fights breaking out in the White House between the top leadership. You can't be proud when we can't have a primary without the former nominee jumping on a podcast, throwing out aspersions, and then we win a tweet war. This We got real problems in America. But I'm telling you, Hillary Clinton is playing a very dangerous game. I do not want somebody of her stature to legitimate these kind of tactics against anybody. If you've got real evidence, come forward with it. But if you're just going to smear people casually on podcasts, you're playing right into the Russians' hands. Right. And they could be, you know, Russians can be backing someone. This is very different than calling that person a Russian asset. Well, I, I, so I think it's, it's just it's, to... it's really it's really, really, really disappointing. All right, Van, thank you very much. So basically what she's saying, they're also going to third party again, Clinton 71 said. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they're going getting their eye on somebody who is currently in the Democratic primary, grooming her to be their third party candidate. Clinton said, referring to Gabbard without mentioning the Hawaiian representative by name. She is a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways to support her so far. That's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not because she's also a Russian accent. David Allen Greer says something about it because I think he likes her. And I said, well, basically everybody who's not a prog is a Russian asset. I mean, that's just how they look at it. That's their excuse for everything. Replies, whatever the Democrats accuse you of doing or being, they already are part MCLXV3 Hillary Clinton. It's interesting they just make up stuff and run with Dems and media. They're the real threat to the Republic. This made me laugh. Tin Murtaugh, spokesman for the president's re-election campaign, said Miss Clinton probably sees Russians in her dreams and behind every lamppost. Losing the 2016 election really did a number on her, which is true. Tulsi Gabbard, great, thank you, Hillary. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wonder who was behind it and why. Now we know. 
It was always you, through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. Good for her. Phil Elliott. Tulsi Gabbard responded to Hillary Clinton comments at 6.30 p.m. Eastern from the University of Iowa homecoming parade. I wonder if Clinton didn't get just get the Gabbard campaign a major break or its exit music. Outer Hangstrom. Out! Daenerys Targaryen, Breaker Chains, Khaleesi of the Great Grass, Sea, and the Mother of Dragons. In! Hillary Clinton, Queen of Warmongers, Embodiments of Corruption and Personification of Rot. Tulsi Gabbard's description of Hillary Clinton is the most badass Halloween costume imaginable. <laughs> to Van Jones, this is true. True for Hillary, but also very true for irresponsible media that for nearly three years carried water for Putin and pushing the Russian collusion fairy tale. Putin didn't destabilize our democracy. The collusion monsters did it because they chose to push it. Yes, they did. Apparently, new take on being a Russian asset is that the asset doesn't have to be paid by Russia, or in fact, even know that Russia has been made, has made them an asset, to in fact be an asset. Truly, it's hard for me to like and retweet this because Van is somehow still perpetuating the Russiagate narrative. But I will always, I will anyway, because at least he's not giving Hillary her usual blank check. This week, Tulsi Gabbard has an unhinged response for Hillary Clinton, Russia allegation. They did an article. Representative Tulsi Gabbard has uh, something to say. An interview Thursday with the Campaign HQ podcast, Hillary Clinton, blah, 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 we heard it. Reports have indicated Gabbard campaign has become a target of foreign bots and Russian media, something Gabbard didn't address in her Friday tweets. She instead labeled Clinton the queen of warmongers and embodiment of corruption and taunted her by declaring, this is a primary between me and you. People said, defending yourself against Hillary's false allegation is now considered unhinged to the MSM. They don't even try to hide it. Therein lies the problem. Liberal media and establishment think they can say whatever they want, and the targets are just supposed to sit back and take it. That's why they hate Trump. He's a Republican that fights back, which has never happened before. And it really makes me think. It's true. I mean, from day one in my lifetime... You've had Democrats walk up, David Duke said this. Oh, I'm sorry, I said Democrats. I meant reporters. David Duke says this. This person says that. Rush Limbaugh called Sander Fluke a whore. And everybody had to answer for it. But maybe Trump is the first one that goes, fuck you. Fuck you. I mean, why in the hell are they still developing? Defending Hillary, she makes up some allegations about a Democrat. On Meet the Press, Pete Buttleg declines to defend Tulsi Gabbard against Hillary Clinton's Russian asset. Uh, what I say that I'm not going to get into their dispute, what I, what I will say is that we know what we know right now. Is that appropriate? Well, I suppose when you become a private citizen, you can say whatever you want. Chuck Todd. No, I understand that. Mayor Pete Buttleg. I would. Chuck Todd. But she's a sitting member of Congress. She served. Well, I certainly honor her service. As we saw in the debate, I've also strong disagreement with her on 
topics like Syria, but the bigger issue here is Russia's working to interfere and blah, blah, blah. Chuck Todd, I just wonder if you're comfortable, I mean, throw a charge out there making her deny it. That's a Trump, that's a Trumpian move, Mayor Pete. Well, we've got to focus on task right at hand, and that includes making sure that the presidency comes to an end. That is my focus. That is what will happen if this presidency comes to an end. Chuck Todd, so you're comfortable with Hillary Clinton critique of Tulsi Gabbard? No, I'm not. I'm also not going to get in the middle of it. I am a wishy-washy candidate, so I'm just going to slide to the left, not care. They're so into Hillary Clinton still. Clinton, I probably came across as too serious in 2016 election. I'm a serious person, but I'm also a fun person. But I think it probably came across too serious. The View had her on. I really believe that my job, especially as a woman and the first woman to go as far as I did, that I had to help people feel good about a woman in the Oval Office, a woman commander-in-chief. And so I may have overcorrected a little bit because sometimes people say, oh, why can't you be like that or why weren't you like that? And I feel like a heavy sense of responsibility and it was much that maybe I wasn't as loose or open as I could have been. So I take responsibility for everything I did as well or my campaign didn't do as well. Sonny Hostin can't take responsibility for Russia and that country's role in the election. I really believe that there were unprecedented events in this election, the last election. I mean, they were beyond my understanding nearly everybody else's. Earlier this year, former special counsel Robert Mueller reported on Russian interference in the 2016 election found that Moscow sought to help Trump win the race for the White House. When we were starting taking the summer 2016 about the Russians, you know, I think most of the press and the public goes, what is she talking about? They didn't understand the attach that we were unfortunately suffering. Clinton added that she had talked to most of the 2020 Democrat presidential candidates and were warned them of voter suppression efforts and hacking. She mentioned former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, who launched a voting advocacy group, Fair Fight Action, after she lost the November election. It goes on and on and on. Oh, wait a minute. You and Stacey Abrams on, and she is a champion for let's everybody vote. At the end of the day, who wins, wins, and who doesn't, doesn't. Or you can lose because of hacking and theft material. Yeah, that's what she said. Theft material. I mean, really, get a fucking grip, Hillary. There's another article out there where she says 10-year-olds are hacking our democracy. Here it is. Daily Wire. Hillary Clinton on a conspiracy roll claims 10-year-olds are hacking our voting system. First of all, if our voting system were hacked, it was under the Obama administration of which Clinton was a part. Did he even mention his concern about Russian meddling in our elections when she was his secretary of state? Word is he told Putin to cut it out. And second... As show points out, the story about 10-year-old hacker from which Clinton might have pulled has long since been debunked. We know we're really vulnerable, she continued. Every, you know, every hackathon that happens, you know, 10-year-olds are hacking our voting system and the network that connects them. The Daily Caller reported that Clinton's claim of 11-year-old hacking the election system came from a story last year that said the boy, according to USA Today, successfully hacked and drew a replica of the website used by the Florida Secretary of State to report election results and change them. The child and others were participating in a DEFCON voting machine hacking village where participants attempted to hack into replica websites in order to change their information. The problem with the story, despite media claim, it showed that vulnerability of our election system is that the replica pages didn't feature the same security system as the real websites, meaning the children came nowhere close to actually hacking our voting system. 
Somebody responded, maybe she should have gone with Stein Russian floppy disk theory. Though Stein is another Russian asset herself. And, and I, I, I think all of this, just all of this, is because they're scared to death they're going to lose again. They're doing the impeachment, which they know they can't pull off. And they're, they're seeing polls that say, hey, everybody beats Trump. But they saw those before. And they got to come up with their new excuse. I mean, what is it going to be? Ukraine stole our election. That'll be the next time if Trump wins. If they don't take the Senate, the House, and the presidency, the media will say Martians took this fucking shit. Because they just can't handle the facts that maybe it's your goddamn policies. You guys are fucking two steps off moon bat. And you sound worse than Trump. You talk about totalitarian, you're the totalitarians. What you can say, drink, eat, drive, AC. I mean, we've, I've gone over the list a million times. God damn. You fucking people are all up in people's shit. Maybe that's why people don't want to vote for you. So let's go to a music break. We're going to come back into uh, more impeachment. you got to hear some of these sound bites from Nancy Pelosi. I just fucking cracked me up. So uh, we're doing old school again. We're going to go, all I want to do is zoom, 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 and a boom, boom. Shake it to the left, shake it to the right I don't mind sticking it to her every single night Come on, pass the boom, boom, send it to pop up Shake it, baby 
bills, up a whole lot of bills. But I ain't in the trickin', just the treatin', and I ain't in the treatin' every trick that I'm eating. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, shake it, baby, shake it down, shake it like that. All I wanna do is go my zone, 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 and I don't move. All I wanna do is go my zone, 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 and I don't move. All I wanna do is go my zone. Media Bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. Now, at the beginning of our country, Mr. Chairman, I know you've heard me say this many times, so forgive me. The beginning of our country, Thomas Paine said, this is the dark days of the revolution. He said, the times have found us. The times have found us. We think the times have found us now. You, Mr. Chairman, everyone in this room who sacrificed their time, resources, and the rest, not only to be here, but to be there uh, for the for our candidates so that we can make a better future. And so here we are. Uh, None of us came to Congress to impeach a president. Not anybody. Not anybody. That's not what we are about. But we did take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. First of all, my condolences on... Yeah, that's so sad. He was a remarkable man. Um, On the impeachment inquiry, how important is it to you not to let this bleed over into an election year? Well, I think I've really made... Thanks, Nancy, for the question. And thank you for your condolences, Elijah. I keep saying to people, impeachment is about the truth and the Constitution of the United States. Any other issues that you have, disapproving of the way the president has dealt with Syria, whatever the subject is, reluctance, the cowardice to do something about gun violence, the cruelty of not wanting to help our dreamers and transgendered people, the denial about uh, a climate crisis that we face, the list goes on. That's about the election. That has nothing to do with what is happening in terms of our honor oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution and the facts that might support. And, and we don't know where this path will take us, but could take us uh, down a further path. But, uh, but the 
two are completely separate. But at what point do you say, let's let the voters decide? Who said that? Uh, no, I'm saying, at what point might you say, let's just let no, the voters no, decide? We, uh, no, the voters are not going to decide whether we honor our oath of office. They already decided that in the last election. Chuck, good morning. We can start with sort of this bundle of, of stories that we're talking about this morning. Right. You have this idea. Remember, the president said, we're going to get out of Syria. I'm going to end endless wars. Well, those troops actually are just moving to Iraq. You have his reversal on Doral. You had Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff from the White House podium, effectively confessing to a quid pro quo, telling America to get over it and then walking yeah. that back. What does it all add up to this week, Chuck? Uh, trouble for the president, uh, I think. It, and this is the first time... Not the first time, but this is as wobbly as I would say congressional Republicans have gotten on Trump, yeah. I'd say, since he took office. I mean, I think the fact that the president backed off the Doral decision, the G7 decision at his resort, shows that he at least can still feel a buzz on the electric fence if he pokes it, right? <laughs> he got a buzz on that one, and he thought, all right, this is too much to ask Republicans in Capitol Hill to support, because it has been. They're uncomfortable with the Syria decision, uncomfortable with his Ukraine's actions. Now you're throwing this on the Barbie? I, you know, that's a lot, a lot of baggage to carry for these guys, and I think it was too much, which is why overnight he did this reversal. Yeah, and in the background of all this, Chuck, this week, you had a bunch of people testifying on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. for a long time in the impeachment inquiry. Uh, the White House obviously has stonewalled, said we're not answering subpoenas, we're not going to show up for interviews and yeah. depositions, but you had very important central figures in the Ukraine story, in fact, testifying this week. It's a, I think it's a very important development overall that, number one, so many administration officials are cooperating. Two, they're really painting a picture of a rogue foreign policy operation that the president directed Rudy Giuliani to be running. And, and the fact that it connected back to the president, the idea, I think, at the, when the week started was that Rudy Giuliani was on his way to scapegoat land. Um, boy, when you look at the picture that was painted this week, it connected Giuliani right back to the president and, and showed that people like John Bolton may become some of the most important character witnesses against the president uh, as there are out there. Yeah, we're hearing Bolton's voice perhaps indirectly for now, but mm -hmm. maybe more explicitly in the future. Chuck, thank you. There's your speaker of the fucking house. Yeah, this is like the colonial days and fuck them voters. Fuck them. Who gives a shit what they say? And Chuck Todd, man, I swear, my wife and I were watching old movies. Um, they have this thing on um, Dish, the uh, Don't Watch Alone Halloween, and she loves the old, old um, black and whites. I mean, she's just really, really good at the black and whites, just gets in, gets into it. And watching the mummy, the mummy's hand, blah, blah, blah. So in between, when you flip to the next one, it pops to normal TV, and there was Chuck Todd. I, I think he was jerking off two-handed on the desk. I mean, he's so excited to see Trump getting impeached. Oh, my God, he's just so excited. More Pelosi. Republicans face a simple question. Is the president allowed to pressure a foreign country in interfering with our elections? I don't know. How many times did Obama do it? How many times did Obama do the same thing? Every president ever withhold funding from countries unless they did something. And he was asking about the 2016 election. And once again, they're saying quid pro quo. They're saying non-quid pro quo. Regardless, it's not high crimes and misdemeanors. 
Here's the things she says. Uh, history will remember their answers or their silence. The Republican Party is being confronted with a crisis of conscience, one that has been gathering force ever since Donald Trump captured the party's nomination in 2016. Afraid of his political influence and delighted with his largely conservative agenda, party leaders have compromised again and again, swan their criticism tact- tactically, if not openly endorsing presidential behavior that would be exonerated of a Democrat. Oh, really? Really? You couldn't say anything to Obama. Compromise by compromise, Trump has hammered away at the Republican once-sound fa- fa- foundational virtues, decency, honesty, responsibility. He has asked them to substitute loyalty for him for patriotism himself. Okay, let's break that down. Any journalist, if Chuck Toad, if this was a Democratic president and it was a Republican, they would, decency, virtue, honesty, and responsibility. What president... Under Nancy fucking, my face is 95% collagen, Pelosi. Have anybody not been a Nazi, disrespecting the office, horrible, they're playing games with the Constitution. I mean, get the fuck out of here. Rebuttals. Biden bragged about doing the very thing you're accusing Trump of, except he did it to enrich his son and assumed himself. So just foreign interference, like the dossier Clinton financed, but not like Obama weaponizing the FBI to spy on Trump after Obama had endorsed Clinton? Do you see how fucking hypocritical you are and your Pico commies are? Fuck your inquiry. I like that. Then we have the big guys on the Judiciary Committee... The highly improper manner in which you're conducting your so-called impeachment inquiry gravely concerns us, as does the fact that you have decreed this matter to be under HPSCI jurisdiction, despite it lacking any clear intelligent component. Further given that you have recently acknowledged that the committee no longer needs to receive testimony from the whistleblower, your impeachment inquiry lacks any relationship with the jurisdiction of this committee. Are you aware the committee was established to conduct crucial oversight of the intelligent community, and we are increasingly concerned our normal work is being overlooked in favor of partisan activities best suited for another committee? We expect you to rectify these concerns and begin planning intelligent-related committee events starting next week. Devin Nunes, Michael Conway, Brad Westrup, Michael R. Turner, Chris Stewart, Rick Crawford, Will Hurd, Elise Stefanik, and John Reckliffe. It's not intelligence. They just want to do it behind closed doors. Because they know they're not going to win. If they put this in the public specter, only the media will buy it. Because everything's high crimes and misdemeanors. Trump's very existence makes Chuck Todd say impeachment in his sleep. I bet his wife to get bang goes, come and impeach me, maybe, baby. Come and bring me that impeachment. Makes me even worse he's a Packer fan. Other articles, Hunter Biden served a ceremonial figure on board for more than 80000 per month. Really? Impeachment witness tells Congress he warned about Biden-Ukraine problem in 2015 and got shut down by Biden. In this article, listen to this. The career State Department official told investigators his warning was rebuffed by Biden's office. Months later, Biden would pressure the Ukraine by withholding a billion dollars to aid in aid 
to fire the prosecutor had looked into company employment employing Hunter, citing sources who spoke on conditions of anonymity. The Washington Post reported Friday that George Kent, a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and Career State Department official, testified Tuesday that he worried that Hunter Biden's position at the firm Burmisa Holding would complicate effort by U.S. diplomats to convey to Ukrainian officials the importance of avoiding conflict of interest. The source told Post that Kent had concerns that the Ukrainian official would view Hunter Biden as a conduit for curry influence with his father. Kent reportedly told congressional investigators that Biden's office dismissed this warning about the potential problematic situation by saying the vice president did not have bandwidth to address the Hunter Burmisa question because he was dealing with his other son, Bo, battling cancer. Kent, who also testified about how Trump Associates raised unfounded allegation about the former ambassador to Ukraine, is the first known example of a career diplomat who raised concerns internally in the Obama administration about Hunter Biden's board position, the Post reports, noting that the paper has previously reported that there has been discussion among Biden advisors about whether his son Ukraine work would be perceived as a conflict of interest and that one former advisor had been concerned enough to mention it to Biden, though the conversation was brief. Let's just break that down. Biden withheld aid until a prosecutor was fired so his son wouldn't get fucked up. Still not high crimes and misdemeanor, but that's more than Trump saying, I'm going to hold this aid until you fucking look into 2016, and then we'll give you the aid. Both of them are wrong, but you don't hear, you don't hear this. It's not in our media, nor is new. State Department has finished its Clinton email review, said it September 13 report that nearly 16, or excuse me, 600 security violations were identified. The investigation conducted by the State Department Bureau of Diplomatic Service found 38 individuals were culpable for 91 security violations. Another 497 violations were found, but no individuals were found culpable in those incidents. Investigators said there was no persuasive evidence of systematic, deliberate mishandling of classified information. These 38 people could face disciplinary action, whatever that means. State Department has completed its internal investigation of former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton's use of private email and found violations by 38 people, some of whom may face disciplinary action. Washington Post, State Department, probe of Clinton emails, finds no deliberate mishandling of classified information. Let's just take this back for a second, folks. If you knowingly take top secret stuff, any secret stuff, and take it out of skiffs, you violated. If you take your computer out of the building, you violated. If you take a thumb drive, you violated. If you email it to Wiener's laptop, you violated. In all those actions, you knowingly did it. Remember, my beef with this was that a so, uh, a fucking sailor took pictures of a goddamn fucking sub and went to jail. There's nothing there. And you notice how WAPO just distilled it down to nothing there, nothing to see here, nothing to see with Biden, nothing to see with the sun, nothing to see the Hillary server. Anxious Husky's ghost. 
For someone who had a pieced together bathroom server with classified information on it, she sure is confident in people's ability to hack into things. Crazy world we live in. On one hand, you have 10-year-olds who can hack elections, and on the other, a Secretary of State who doesn't know what a classified email is. There it is. That sums it the fuck up. So I was going to come up with a new bumper. I... No, I'm not going to. I'm just going to play it. Here's the media on Syria. And we are joined now by the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Thank you for joining us this morning, Secretary Pompeo. And let me begin with what we just heard from that Kurdish commander. says the Kurds are not happy that this is a betrayal that she fears will lead to genocide. We keep the American people safe from the threats from radical Islamic terrorism wherever we find it. didn't the president put those gains at risk by pulling the troops out? We saw the fighting immediately. I'm very confident that this administration's efforts to crush ISIS will continue. And Lindsey Graham raises the other concern about as the with Kurds are withdrawing from that border uh, with Turkey, that it would lead to a military occupation that displaces hundreds of thousands. He says that's not a safe zone. It's ethnic cleansing. Can you assure the Kurdish people and, you, and the president's allies in Congress that you will not be party to ethnic cleansing? George, we were very clear. And the vice president could not have been more clear when we were speaking with President Erdogan. Go take a look at the statement that was released jointly. Uh, No fewer than uh, three of the paragraphs were aimed squarely at ensuring that in this space, this Turkish-controlled space between Talabiyad and Ras Alan, uh, in that Turkish-controlled space, that there wouldn't be uh, attacks on minorities, uh, that this was about getting a ceasefire, a secure area, and that this, in fact, will save lives in that very space. That was our mission set. We accomplished accomplished it. And now we need to make sure that the commitments that were made in that statement are honored. The Turks said they got everything they wanted. Yeah, I was there. Uh, it, it sure didn't feel that way uh, when we were negotiating. It was a hard-fought negotiation. It began before the vice president and I even arrived in Ankara. It lasted uh, hours while we were there. Uh, we, we achieved the outcome that President Trump sent us to achieve. Now, let's just oppose that to how they acted when Obama, just keeping up with a campaign promise, removed everybody out of Iraq, which created the vacuum, which created ISIS, which created everything we were having and why we're even in Syria. As a candidate for president, I pledge to bring the war in Iraq to a responsible end for the sake of our national security and to strengthen American leadership around the world. After taking office, I announced a new strategy that would end our combat mission in Iraq and remove all of our troops by the end of 2011. As Commander-in-Chief, ensuring the success of this strategy has been one of my highest national security priorities. Last year, I announced the end to our combat mission in Iraq. And to date, we've removed more than 100,000 troops. Iraqis have taken full responsibility for their country's security. Uh, A few hours ago, I spoke with Iraqi Prime Minister Maliki. I reaffirmed that the United States keeps its commitments. He spoke of the determination of the Iraqi people to forge their own future. We are in full agreement about how to move forward. So, today... I can report that, as promised, the rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, 
America's war in Iraq will be over. Over the next two months, our troops in Iraq, tens of thousands of them, will pack up their gear and board convoys for the journey home. The last American soldier will cross the border out of Iraq with their held, heads held high, proud of their success, and knowing that the American people stand united in our support for our troops. That is how America's military efforts in Iraq will end. But even as we mark this important milestone, we're also moving into a new phase in the relationship between the United States and Iraq. As of January 1st, and in keeping with our strategic framework agreement with Iraq, it will be a normal relationship between sovereign nations, an equal partnership based on mutual interests and mutual respect. Meanwhile, yesterday marked the definitive end of the Gaddafi regime in Libya. And there, too, our military played a critical role in shaping uh, a situation on the ground in which the Libyan people can build their own future. Today, NATO is working to bring this successful mission to a close. So to sum up, the United States is moving forward from a position of strength. The long war in Iraq will come to an end by the end of this year. The transition in Afghanistan is moving forward, and our troops are finally coming home. The day has come. On day 3,139 of the war in Iraq, President Obama announced it's over. American troops will be home by the end of the year. The war began as a hunt for weapons of mass destruction which were never found. Then the U.S. found itself in the middle of a civil war, caught between two branches of Islam. On this historic day, we have reports from David Martin and Nora O'Donnell. First David, who's at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Good evening, Scott. Fort Bragg is the home of the 82nd Airborne, which currently has 3,500 troops in Iraq. They'll all be home for the holidays because today the president pulled the plug on negotiations that could have kept some American troops in Iraq past the end of this year. The rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, America's war in Iraq will be over. For better or worse, the military operation, which began with shock and awe in March of 2003 and descended into the mayhem of civil war, is really going to end. Even though both Americans and Iraqis agree, there are still holes in Iraqi defenses. The U.S. had offered to keep up to 5,000 troops there to train Iraqis in air defense, intelligence, and protecting against the threat of invasion, particularly from Iran. But scarred by the abuses of Abu Ghraib prison, the killings, both accidental and deliberate of civilians, and incidents with security contractors like the Blackwater Guards who gunned down people in a public square, Iraqi politicians refused to grant American troops immunity from prosecution under local laws. Immunity is a standard agreement wherever U.S. forces are deployed. That was the deal breaker, and it now means the 39,000 troops still in Iraq down from a high of 170,000, will all be out by December 31st. Today, I can say that our troops in Iraq will definitely be home for the holidays. The Bush administration had originally agreed to the December 31st withdrawal date, 
But the assumption had always been that a new agreement would keep a smaller number of troops in Iraq for several more years. Now the only troops who will remain are a couple hundred assigned to the embassy in Baghdad to administer the sale of U.S. military equipment. Getting out will probably make for good politics in both countries. The question is, will it make for good strategy? Scott? David, this leaves Iran on Iraq's doorstep with no U.S. troops there. How is Iraq going to defend itself? Well, one U.S. military official said, we'll find a way. And he specifically mentioned sending civilian contractors to Iraq to do the training, bringing Iraqis to the United States to train, and even sending U.S. troops back into Iraq to conduct exercises. David, thanks very much. As the world counts down to the August 31st deadline for U.S. combat forces to leave Iraq, the last combat brigade, 4th Striker 2nd Infantry Division, has already left the country, almost two weeks ahead of the Obama administration's requirement. All right, brothers. One more round? One more. As many Iraqis brace for what they feared could be a turbulent departure in the waning days of U.S. combat forces, they awoke this morning to a new chapter in the occupation. No longer Operation Iraqi Freedom, but now called by the Pentagon, a new dawn. Over the course of four nights and early mornings this week, elements of the last brigade drove hundreds of striker vehicles from Camp Victory near the Baghdad airport to hear the Kuwaiti border. Al Jazeera joined them for the journey. How does it feel? Feels great. Yeah. It uh, this marks the end of, uh, of a year-long uh, mission in Iraq uh, for, for our brigade. It also represents the end of seven years of war in Operation Iraqi Freedom. What does that mean to you? It, uh, it means uh, we finished a mission. And I, I'm proud to, to know that uh, our brigade was the last combat brigade in Iraq. Uh, we finished with honor and we finished with dignity. Uh, most importantly, we left uh, capacity with the Iraqi security forces uh, so they can take the lead from here on out. Seven and a half years after the invasion, Iraqis are now for the first time since Saddam in charge of their own security. Some Iraqi army officers say they're unprepared. Earlier this month, Iraq's top army officer, General Babakir Zabari, said his soldiers would need 10 more years to be ready. A senior Iraqi intelligence officer, who asked us not to use his name for fear of his life, told us he believes the Iraqi army is unfit, incompetent, and unprepared to take over. He said he had detailed information about high-profile attacks to come. And most damning of all, he said the downward trend in violence over the last few months is actually a result of underreporting, that he was being prevented from reporting some of the violent activity in his area. Iraq, he says, is in the throes of a surge of violence. Even as the U.S. heralds the departure of its combat forces, there remains a massive infrastructure of military bases and 50,000 U.S. soldiers. Their stated role is to act as trainers and advisors, and to continue to counter what they call terrorism. With the government in stalemate, increasing violence, and senior Iraqi army concerns, the question is, will this milestone mark the end of the war, or the beginning of a new period of violence? And something that I don't think we think about enough here in the United States, somewhere between 104 
1,106 and 113,755 Iraqi lives. It's a difficult thing to estimate. Those numbers may be higher, they may be lower, but a shocking, shocking, shocking number of Iraqi lives. Um, I was struck by two things about this. First of all, the way that we feel about the end of the Iraq war as opposed to the way we felt about the beginning. And in the way the president said it's easier to begin a war than to end one, which I think was profound and true. But also, it just, um, you know, this was the, the defining political issue of a generation in some ways. I mean, the whole cohort of people got activated on politics in opposition to the Iraq war. We, we basically waged two elections over the Iraq war, 2004 and 2008. Barack Obama is president today. I think it's not an overstatement to say. Because as a state senator in Illinois, he got up at an anti-war rally and opposed it and said this is a... Dumb- Big difference, isn't it? He announced it. We never questioned it. It was just a campaign promise. From that point on, they drug their feet and they said it was the greatest thing ever because they hated Bush and they hated that war. And that Chris Hayes at the end, remember he said we should make heroes out of soldiers. He was just a douche fucking nozzle. But it took me um, 38 minutes to come up with those sound bites. I sat here and looked for them. And you can't get them because they don't list them online anymore. They've scrubbed it. Because here they are, once again with Google, I search MSNBC, last troops leaving Iraq. I got articles, Trump sucks because he's pulling out of Syria. But they never question Obama pulling out of anything. Which brings me to our last one, and we'll go into our lighter fare. Kimberly Strassel, our media is so bad in a time when we need it the most. So many Americans who have lost faith in the media in recent years, and it's a real problem because we need a functioning media. We need them to be trusted, um, and we need them uh, to be someone that tells us the the truth on things with one standard, one standard for Democrats, one standard for Republicans. We haven't seen that for three years. Like I've been a reporter for twenty five years, right? And uh, you know, I've always felt that the media leaned left. That wasn't a surprise to anyone. But what we've seen over the past three years is something entirely different. This is the media actively engaging on one side of a partisan warfare. It's overt. Um, they've dropped all their standards in order to do this, whether it be the use of anonymous sources, whether it be putting uncorroborated accusations into the paper, uh, whether it's using biased sources for information and cloaking them as neutral observers. There's there's so many bad things that have happened. Um, and in a way, I blame that for so much else that has gone wrong, okay? okay? Because, look, the media is supposed to be our guardrails, right? When a political party transgresses a political boundary, they're supposed to say, no, that's beyond the pale, stop. You know, or they're supposed to say, actually, the FBI wiretapping American citizens in a political campaign is a bad thing. We've always felt that before. We're going to say it again. Instead, they didn't do any of that. They indulged this behavior. She's spot on. You can't trust the media. 
They're so bad now that lefties don't even trust them, and that's the scary thing. So, lighter fare. Two utterly bizarre, twelve utterly ja- bizarre Japanese game shows that actually exist. I was going to play a soundbite because I'm watching world's dumbest performers, inventors, whatever. So we saw one where. Well, I'll wait till we read it in here. But it was just the most absurd thing I've ever seen. And I found this article, and I found a soundbite, but it's completely in Japanese, of the crazy games, which anybody who's been to Japan or you've just done a layover like I have in Yokota, it's amazing some of the shit that's on their TV. When it comes to game shows, you might think America is a formula down from Jeopardy to Double Dare. There's no end to what our TV executives have been able to dream up over the years. Heck, they even started a whole game show network. Yet, if you've ever seen Japanese game shows, you know America can't compare. While Americans show off some crazy stuff, Japan's versions usually feature insane and potentially embarrassing challenges, bright flashing lights, and supremely enthusiastic hosts. Take these 12. Candy or not candy? No, this isn't a game popularized by toddlers eating unidentified food off the floor. This is a real game show that utilized the Japanese art form known as Sokuri, or sweet sculpting for its premise. The game was simple. Bite into random objects and see if they're actually chocolate. Sometimes the contestants would luck out and the object they bit into was actually delicious chocolate. Other times, it might just be a shoe. Every time, it was entertaining. Dero Dero. On the surface, this Japanese game show closely resembles something you expect on American TV. Contestants simply have to solve puzzles, answer questions, or compete a mental challenge. There was a catch, of course. Constants on Dero Dero weren't treated to the comfort of a cozy studio. Instead, they had to complete these challenging mental tasks while facing extremely stressful situations like balancing on a narrow plank as a floor retracted in the wall. <laughs> The Bum Game. This game show managed to combine all things inappropriate, degrading, and hilarious into an easy-to-consume cocktail. It starts with a few women placing their rear ends through an open port in a large wall. On the other side of that wall, obviously, a couple of lucky, is lucky the right word, contestants then have to kiss the exposed bums and guess which one belongs to which girl. It's kind of like American Matchmaker show with butts. Torre! Seven questions was all that stood between contestants and the game-winning prize. But by now, you should know that these seven questions came with a catch. You had to answer them before you were mummified. Human Tetris. Just about every person on the planet has played the game Tetris. Blocks fell from the sky, and you had to stack them neatly as they fell. In Japan, they have a show sort of like that. And Human Tetris, instead of blocks falling, contestants have to contort their bodies to fit through gaps in an un- in an oncoming wall. Failure to twist in the right shape resulted in a dunk in a pool of dirty water. Let's go to the end of the world. This game show gave contestants an incredible opportunity to live their dreams and travel the world. Unfortunately, the trip came with a pretty big catch. A very big catch. When contestants reached their destination, the game show presented them with an appropriate horrific challenge. In this case, the contestants was given the opportunity to explore wildlife by being placed in a plexiglass cube and exposed to grizzly bears. Oh, my God. AK Bingo. Now, this game was some good, wholesome fun in it. Teams compete in dodgeball match. In that respect, there wasn't even a catch. The balls weren't made in iron, of iron. The floor wasn't greased up with Crisco. If you were hit with the ball, however, things got ugly. If you were hit, a famous Japanese comedy duo would choose your punishment, which became more and more gross as the game progressed. Unnamed sleeping game. This one might just be the weirdest of all. The set features a room of sleeping Japanese models and two male hosts named Mama 
and son went around waking them up. Of course, it wouldn't be a Japanese game show without a catch. Of course, each model would ask to wake up as cute as possible. The judges also host mama and son deemed her a serious morning monster. They would throw a pie in their face. Soapy stare game. Of all these games, this one probably packed the most painful punch. It was extremely simple. Contestants just had to run up some stairs, but of course, it was easier said than done. The stairs would be covered in grease, and the contestants inevitably slipped and fell, and that's actually an American game. We've ripped that one off. Strip the girl! And this is the one that I saw. Meet the Japanese game show so salacious that clips of it no longer appear on YouTube. The main prize was getting to see a model naked, so it obviously wasn't concerned with being politically correct. In this game, contestants endured a series of degrading tasks that usually involved throwing bean bags and number tiles covering the naked model. The more tiles, the more you gotta see naked. And it was, it was funny. Uh, last two were spread your legs. It's a big colorful wheel with a number on it. The price is right. Unfortunately, ladies in the game show weren't spinning for a spot in showcase showdown. Instead, after one woman spun the colorful wheel, another female contestant endured a device that spread her legs further and further apart. The distance spread corresponded with the number spun. It looked painful, and human bowling is exactly what it sounds like. So we definitely have a long way to go on our crazy games. Don't have it. This is America today, but I do have two sound bites of my Mighty Ducks beating UW and my Packers. Aaron Rodgers went back to being a good quarterback again. Washington said they're particularly concerned with the last couple of plays. That handoff straight ahead, almost like it's a dive. They fake a dive. They throw a touchdown pass. Spencer Webb, who's been a tight end and a wide receiver, now back to tight end for the most part. In the absence of Breland, and he has his second touchdown of the season. The late pitch. Ahmed broke a tackle and has the end zone. The Avalos came over from Boise State. He's been fantastic. Easton deep throw. Man behind the defense. Touchdown, Jordan Chen. Missed the first four games. Quick out wide, Jalen Red.
cutting back to the middle, and he's down to the 29-yard line. Right there, rush five guys, drop one once in a while. His car all kinds of time, and he throws it away. Mains out with a foot injury. Here's a third and seven for Carr. He's going all the way deep in that same corner and over the head of the rookie Renfro. Game ended up in a tie, was cut after it, but he's been solid for the Raiders. And he hits another one. Fuck, you've shown it. Yep. Second and three to Jones. Nice cut to the outside. Look at Jones with a stiff arm of his own. In Cincinnati, when Gunther there, that was one of the teams during the Packers and the offensive dominant gave them a lot of trouble with their scheme. Third and six. All kinds of time again for Rodgers. Wide open. He's got Graham, who slips down at the... Going to stay up top on first down. Going to go to the end zone. Turning around, and did he make the catch? What a catch it is by Aaron Jones. What an adjustment at the end. Touchdown, Green Bay, from 21 yards out. By this, you're... Running back is going to come out and run a corner route, but look at the throw is back. Schultz, good company for sure. Second and 20. On the slant, he's got his man, and breaking a tackle, it's Davis, who is then pile-driven back. Third and four. Richard is a running back. And Carr overthrows his target, who was open. Doss just got away from Derrick. Now from the 10. Rodgers from the gun. That's back to the one and throws it again to Aaron Jones. Down from the 20. And Rodgers. To Vitaly. Low snap. Rodgers able to secure it. And he's in trouble back at the 33. And that is the rookie, Max Crosby. Seeing these safeties high, they're going to try and play most of the time. Here's the pass, blocker in front, good for the first down. From the 33. Over to Jacobs. Nice little sidestep. Yard play called back and a 16-yard play called back. First and 20. And coming out of nowhere. With a couple of jump cuts and picking up four is Jacobs again. Now we'll see. Third and 11. Carr zips it wide open for the first in Green Bay territory is Doss. Keelan Doss. That's the way you have to play this game, but you have to connect on those third downs. And right now, that's been why Oakland's losing. Second and 10. Look who's wide open for the touchdown. Darren Waller. There's a flag at the line of scrimmage. Holding offense number 72. Second and 20 instead. Carr steps up. Sips it to Carrier. Takes a couple of Packers with him. Want to play versus man? Carr slides left. Throws. Gets the first down. Third and three. Carr has hit his last eight passes. It comes out quickly. And diving for the end zone. And the touchdown is the rookie, Foster Moreau. Mahomes. About a month later, figure. Second and six. And it's by Tally. By Tally. Rodgers looking at the defense here, trying to find the right play. He likes it. Go with it. Needs eight for a first. 
Oakland 40. I like it to be offset. Thank you. Check the towel. First catch by a wideout. And he's down to the... Trying to get him to jump. Now here he goes. Up the middle. First down. Jones. Rodgers steps up. Flings it. Got his man. Gain of nine. And if you can run the football, you're going to have opportunities. Second and six. Again, has the time, but throws it away. On a flag is thrown at the one-yard line. It looked to me like it was pass interference. Pass interference. Defense number 25. The ball is placed at the spot of the foul. Drive is at the eight-minute mark for the Packers. That's why we said this game is about possessions. One big play. And there it is. You see, you've got to finish these off with touchdowns. You're only going to get, right now, Jim, what is that, three possessions each team? Second and two. There's Carr down the field. Nice catch. He just got a new contract this week, a contract extension. Here's the first down play by Carr. Down the middle, wide open. It's Waller to the 10 and tripped up at the 2 by Will Redmond. Rolling out with it. Carr looking, looking. No options, and he dives for the pylon. Oh, did that go through the, into the end? It is ruled a fumble, Tony. And it will be Green Bay ball at the... <laughs> okay, so the Packers take over. And they get the pass over. Third and three. Packers with one timeout. From behind, he's able to get rid of it in time. And Conley makes the pick at the 40-yard line. The ruling on the field was a complete pass. Personal foul, roughing the passer. Defense number 91. Huge difference. You're going to see the, the hit. Oh, that's, boy, that is in the knee area. Yeah, that's a correct call. You can't hit him there. No. And now this catch, though, is going to add a... That's a drop. Now, that's that's coming back, but it's going to be 15 yards first. The ball hit the ground, and the pass is incomplete. The 15-yard penalty for the roughing the passer foul will still be enforced. It'll be first down for Green Bay at the 42-yard line. Just outside of a minute remaining. In the second quarter. Pass. Out of the hands of Lazar. It's a tough call because you want to get this first down and go, but you don't want to give open time. To me, I'd snap it and go and trust your defense. Third and six. Third and six. Pass to a wide open Allison for the first down at the 40. 55 from this point. Perfect conditions, too. The wind. Field is solid as Rodgers goes for something much bigger. Kumaro dies for the pylon. It's a touchdown. Rodgers, I'm going to look this safety right here and hold him inside. And then, boom, right over the top to the right. Right over Whirling. Nothing controversial about the car fumble. It was right by the rule. Exactly what the official call was on that. Even was upset about a hold call earlier as Rodgers launches deep. Valdez Gantling wide open, even with two Raiders back deep. In the second quarter and in the first minute and a half of the third quarter. Again, another sign on throw. Graham takes a Raider with him. Sees 5-9 blitz in the things. Takes the handoff to Jones. Now he's going to run with it. He's going to walk it in. Aaron Rodgers with the touchdown.
a blur. First time in a long time is Jacobs. Obviously, the Mac thing, that'll play itself out as the years go on. But with him and Mac are building, I mean, you can see it. Second and seven, Carr's got an open target. And that's Waller again. When you get to a play you like, you go run it. Carr's completed his last 12 passes. Make it 13 to Waller. You see guys get open a little bit once in a while because they're depending on guys to cover a lot of people. It's Jacobs. He weaves around the outside. Martinez is waiting for him. You know, it's one of those things you've got to get points in this possession. Third and five. And the Raiders pick up the first down with Renfro. Not get that off in time. You just got to snap it and go with the play you got, whether it's good or not. Out of the gun. Across the middle. Back to the end zone. Water with the touchdown. What a drive by the Raiders. Talking on the side here. If they would have won against Green Bay, that's your first or fourth in that game. Puts a hands to the face, reminding him of that. Here's a pass over to Graham. What a move by Jimmy Graham. Great. He loves golf, so uh, just, he's, he get out there and have fun. He's good. Third and eight. You always wanted them to run the ball when you play against them. You like, feel like they're going to get 30 yards every time they pass. What it feels like right now. As Jamal Williams slips to a tackle. And he picks up another eight. Jamal Williams is a first down from the 29. Going to the end zone. And the ball is caught right in front of Worley. That's Lazard pulling it down. It's the handoff to Jones. Hands around at the 13. Throws it at the goal line. It is caught. Jimmy Graham with the touchdown. There's number 350. At some point, you got to say, you got to get a fumble, you got to get a turnover, you got to get more aggressive on defense. Second and six. Gets it back to Waller. That's enough. We have multiple plays from all these formations. That's not easy to do to get everyone on the same page, but they do it really well. That's Jacobs. He's got a 100-yard game on this run, and he's taken off. Holds it with two hands smartly. Ivan again at the Green Bay 36 car. Good pass under pressure, and they've got another first down. 21 out of 23. That's because you have the lead and you're staying aggressive. Most people are like, you're going to run it. Not Green Bay. That's Morrow. The big play. Third and goal. You can't run this. This has to be a play action, right? Not from they there. Run it down to the one, and the Packers all in tight again. Waller on that right side. They run it. They dive over the top, and somersaults short of the goal line is Jacobs. Goes up. Does he get entered? Green Bay with a big stop, it looks like. We can do a whole bunch with this team. See what they come up with on third and five. Here comes the blitz. Oh, they hit Rodgers as he got rid of it just in time. He, one of the greatest ever. Third and three. Park. Down the field. What a catch. Punted only once. Down the middle. The interception. End zone pick. Next week, which is again going to be another tough assignment. 100%. Here's a third and five for a first down. That is Valdez Scantley racing down the sideline. There's no bad ankle evident on that one. That one's so vital. Thank you, Phil. And what's happening in the AFC South. 
There's the toss. Richard. Three Packers on him. I don't know. It's going to be interesting how this plays out. They're really good, obviously. Raiders make the stop. Still scored on that drive, I believe. And I think this Oakland offense might be really good. You know, that's the only time you're going to see the Smiths. They're, they're the reason why these guys are able to cover sometimes in the back end quickly. There's Davis. Look at Davis get past the wave. And Davis is going to drop back to three and three. Trying to beat a team with a winning record for the third straight game. That hadn't happened for that franchise since 01. Nice little team 51. And Mark Rippon in 91. 400, 5 and 1. And the Raiders find the end zone. Fantastic games this weekend. I was telling my wife, it's like you having back-to-back reunion shows for one of your housewives. Yeah, double wins. So this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOPPodcast, gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Planes, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Remember to check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and our Twitter page at FOP Tony Reed. Our next podcast will be 25 October, Year of Our Lord, 2019. Make sure that's a Friday on your Swatch watches. And by then, it'll be cool where I live. Make sure you stay warm. Stay safe. We've got big storms coming our way, but it looks like they're all going to be south, so we won't get the Dallas treatment. And make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs And tune back in Friday for another show. As always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.